Hi, everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. And today we're going to be looking at Tintin, the broken ear. Yes. Right. Now, if you're... I agree. Uh, oh, good. Okay. So <laughs> I'm, always, we, I'm always so agreeable with sort of these shows. All right. We're, we're going with the rules of order, so we're going to second that motion, and we're going to go forward with mm-hmm. the, uh, the broken ear. Good, because yes. it's the only one I've read this week. <laughs> Uh, if this is your first time listening to the show, here's how it works. I am a comic book fan, and I work professionally in the comic book industry, uh, writing Simpsons and Futurama comics, but I have never actually read Tintin before this series, so I am going to read every one of them, uh, and we're going to discuss them, whereas David, on the other hand... I have read them all many times, as a child and as a... well, not as a child, as a teenager and as an adult. And would you count yourself a Hergé fan? Of course, if you read Tintin, you have to be a Hershey fan. Well, I'm I'm reading it. Am I a fan yet? We'll see. <laughs> Wait till the last episode to find out. There we go. Anyway, so here's how, how it usually uh, breaks down. Uh, David gives a little context to uh, where we're at, uh, you know, in uh, in the world of Tintin. And then we go uh, through basically page by page uh, through the actual book itself. So this is a spoiler podcast. If you have not read the book yet and you don't want it spoiled, read it first, then come on back. But if you have then that is fine. Mm -hmm. And almost ideally is to sit with it in your lap while we talk about it, because we do tend to to go through it uh, page by page almost. Right. Now, if you are listening to this podcast, we'll say on a treadmill, do not put it in your lap. No, but you have no lap. You're standing up, I assume. Put it on uh, like a stand or something. Unless you're on a crouch mill, in which case it's fine to put it in your lap. (laughs) Right. If you have a child already on your lap, do not put the book directly on the child. <laughs> you know how to read a book, frankly. I, I, we're, we're trusting that. <laughs> we're uh, and, by, and by the by, uh, if at the end of this you think, oh, I haven't heard those guys enough, we also do another uh, weekly podcast called Sneaky Dragon, which is more just talking about things in our own personal lives. Yeah. But our personal lives are gone now. We are going to dive fully into the broken ear. Uh, let's start with the cover. Do you like the cover? I love this cover. Oh, okay. Why? Because we were thinking about the you're thinking about the blue lotus well, and the fact the, that I didn't like it that much. No, no, no. Uh, well, you didn't like the the cover for the blue lotus. That's true. Mm-hmm. But I know you're a big fan of Hergé's water. Yeah. And this cover has quite a bit of water. It doesn't have as much water as the Black Island, which I think is your favorite mm-hmm. cover. Uh, but this one is waterful. It does have some water, but it doesn't. You know, the thing is, is that we're still. Uh, this is still black and white Hergé. This is a, obviously a colorized version of of that, of his black and white style. But um, we're still kind of working out of early Hergé into his mid period Hergé. So we're not really at his like best water yet. Okay. Like he hasn't got all his tricks down yet. Like I think if you look at like the cover of the Black Island, which to be fair is a lot later, even later than than this book, because we can talk about it next time when we get to that one. But the the he hadn't quite developed all his tricks yet, and we can talk about it while we're Looking at the book, there's okay. some scenes in here, I think, that kind of point to some of his older stylings that are still kind of hanging in there. And if you want a little more detail on this, uh, David uh, sometimes does show notes on mm-hmm. the books that we do, and that's at our website, SneakyDragon.com. You can check those out. Yeah, there's show notes for the last one, the for uh, the Blue Lotus. Right. Or not, not the Blue Lotus, the Cigars of the Pharaoh. That's right, and they are, they're good. Let me say that. I know I'm part of the podcast, so it sounds like <laughs> I'm prejudiced here. But uh, no, I thought they were very good notes. Now, uh, mm-hmm. where are we right now in the world of Hergé, David? So, uh, Hergé is still, obviously, still working at Le Petit Vantien. We talked a couple episodes ago about Father Wale being let go. And so, um, his, his, uh, tenure at Le Petit Vantien was kind of tenuous. Like, he wasn't as wedded to the job as he was when he had his mentor there kind of keeping him, like, you know, this person there that he admired. He still was working there because Hergé, and it's, we really didn't talk about his childhood very much, but he grew up in a very, 
and it's, I don't mean to put it as a put down, but he grew up in a very bourgeois family. Like they were a merchant family. His, his, his dad and his uncle ran a clothing store, children's clothing store. And that was kind of his destiny was to be, <laughs> to take over the store. And that he didn't want to do that. Your but his, destiny is children's pants. Mm-hmm. That's a rough destiny. That, that is, is a rough not destiny. a hero's journey. <laughs> and, you know, so I think although he, he, he loved to draw and he drew all the time as a child, his parents really did not encourage him at all as an artist until he was quite a bit older. Then he was sent to uh, a local, uh, you know, kind of academy where he could take some drawing lessons, which by that point he had kind of, I don't know how to describe it, he kind of developed himself past that as a, you know, so he went into this class and he's expected to sit and do kind of life drawings and he found it very dull and very boring. And so he basically took one class and that was it for him. Okay. You know, because he'd already learned to do life drawings. He was kind of already doing, you know, illustrations for his scouts and stuff like that for their for their kind of newsletters and things. What would have been the equivalent of newsletters at that time? I doubt they had newsletters per se, but, you know, what would have been newsletters? He was already illustrating those and right. kind of, and so... You know, his goal was to become a working artist, not necessarily a cartoonist, but a working artist. And so, you know, he could not say no to, to a job. Mm-hmm. That was his, his, I wouldn't say it was his downfall, but it's just, you know, a problem that he had that, you know, he just could not say it. So he kept piling work on himself. So we know that Le Petit Vantiam, he was doing a lot of graphic work and a lot of the spot illos and stuff like that, as well as Tintin and Quick and Flupka. His little urchins. So those were those were also any every issue as well. So he did two pages of Tintin and a page or a page two pages of Quick and Flupka, his little uh, street urchins and their and their adventures. And so uh, starting now after the Blue Lotus came out, there was a bit of I'm not going to say conflict, but what Casterman wanted from him was color. Now the, Casterman were, were the, his publishers. Right. That's right. So they took over. From Le Petit Vantiem as the publisher of his graphic novel. So they're being serialized. I, don't, I hate the word graphic novels. I shouldn't have said that. But they were, they were being serialized in, uh, in Le Petit Vantiem. And then they would be collected into book form. Right. They'd be two, two pages. That's right. Each week. Each week, yeah. And then all those would be rounded up together and, and published in book form. First by uh, Le Presse de Vet Le And then by uh, Casterman, who took over. Because they could provide uh, better distribution. And that, you know, that was obviously more appealing to Hergé is to have someone who could distribute not only in Belgium, but outside of Belgium as well. So, but starting with the Blue Lotus, they, you know, are pushing him to have color in his books, which he was kind of dragging his feet about because to him, what made him stand out on the shell, like on the stands, was the black and white. You know, everything else was color. And so if he's color too, what makes him, you know, stand out amongst the Journal de Mickey and all the other you know, magazines were coming out for children and stuff at that time. So, and then uh, he, the other thing that was, it, it involved more work. So he wasn't really interested in that because... That's true, yeah. You know, he's doing Le Petit Vantiem. It's uh, black and white. And that's mm-hmm. fine. So what would it then entail with him? The next step would be before he could publish in Casterman, was he'd have to go back all through his, all back through his pages and recolor them all or discolor them all right. for actual book publication. Now, it would have to be him doing the coloring? He couldn't get someone else to do that? Well, I guess he could have, but, you know, once you've... It's kind of your baby. Do you want to give over control to, say, give well, to Casterman and say, you guys do it? I'll trust you to... Well, modern comics. I mean, maybe not modern comic strips, mm-hmm. but modern comic books, definitely. That was, Like, if sure. you had, you know, something, you know, uh, other, other collections at the time, would they all color their own work? Well, no. But, I mean, something like Mickey Mouse... 
already was an assembly line. There was no individual right. person. It wasn't Walt Disney creating Mickey Mouse. He wasn't drawing the comic strips. You know, but he I might have a hand. I understand in, coloring is important, but it just it, it feels like that could have been something that you can hand once you've got a color guide. Yeah. You know, Tintin looks like this. This is how rosy his cheeks are. Maybe yeah. there's something specific he could direct it, but he would not have to color everything directly himself unless sure. he was he was that kind yeah, of hands on. He was person. that kind of meticulous person. Yeah, Even snowy later, is always the same shade of snowy white. <laughs> Even later, well, like Tintin's sweater when it was colored was actually two different paints combined together mm-hmm. to get that vibrant blue color. And so you had to have those two paints. Otherwise, right. you would not get that Tintin but once blue. But once you've cracked that code, you can sure. pass it along to your assistant. That's it. Exactly. And then off you go. Exactly. And that's what he did. But he still, every everything that happened with Tintin, even later when it became more of an assembly line production, like you're talking about. Uh, did I didn't know. Here See, in North I, America, we yeah. are used to assembly line comic book production. Right. In Europe, even later, it was still pretty... Like when you read a European comic book, it's very rarely inked by a separate person. Mm. The artist inks it and does the lettering. I guess I am look- I, like I'm looking back at something like... And I, I'm trying to think of another comparison, but like something like The Spirit. You still, will it was done by various people. It that's what I'm saying. It wasn't Eisner by himself. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like you had... Uh, you know, He was doing his things in the 40s mm-hmm. and he, he had an assembly line set yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. But he was used to that because he was doing that before he started The Spirit. He... Mm-hmm. He was providing content to comic books. Mm-hmm. Him and, and Jerry Iger had a had a, their own uh, assembly line production, you know, thing that before he started the Spirit, they were doing comic book filler, like material for comic books. Mm-hmm. They were pumping out, you know, so they were already used to that assembly line for him to go from from an assembly line producing material for comics to an assembly line producing material for a spirits supplement yeah. isn't a big jump for Eisner. Well, I can, I'm, what I'm going with here is, you know... When, for when anyone you, in North America When comics, you think of a, a high-quality comics North American... Boy, I said that backwards, didn't I? Uh, Will Eisner is, is, is right up there. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think his work suffered... For the assembly line, you know, process, he had he just hired really good people, people yeah. like Jack Kirby, you know, amazing, sure. amazing people to work, you know, with mm-hmm. him, and uh, I think the results, you know, speak for themselves. But I can understand how someone yeah. would feel. But Kirby, Lou Fine, yeah, Wallace Wood, but for what you've been oh, saying for about, Austin, but. yeah, what you've been saying about Hergé's personality, he seemed, you know, with with the I can't turn down a job, mm-hmm. you know, it, it it seems that kind of I've got to control everything, I've got to take everything, yeah. I've got to do everything. Yeah, that was his mindset. It was part of his mindset, but also part of the what became the tradition of European comics. Like when you look at yeah. Asterix, everything you're looking at was done by Uderzo. There's nothing on that page that he his hand wasn't didn't touch. Whether it's the color, the inking, the lettering, none, none of that is is farmed out. Maybe later in his life it was, but when they were working for the magazines, you know, now that he's an older man, he probably does a lot. You know, have a lot I of so, yeah. assistance and stuff. But when they first started, whether it's Morris doing Lucky Luke or Frank Han doing Spiro and, and Fantasio or um, T.U. doing Jules Rodin, all those books were all basically like they were an auteur, you know, yeah. and they were the author of it. There was no, there was no middleman or no, you know. So even when Hergé in the '50s started Studio er, Studios Hergé, and it was, you know, and he hired people to help him with scenarios and inking and coloring and putting together the merchandising and stuff like that. Um, you know, yes, handpicked people. You know, you had to go through an interview process in order to be hired. But also everything that was done there was went through Hergé. He was the filter of quality. So if it wasn't good enough, 
it was redrawn and, re- and redone, you know, and he would go through and he would redraw on the page what he wanted as corrections right. and stuff like that. So even at that time, when he had kind of loosened the reins a little bit, he still had tons of control over Tintin. And he always regarded Tintin as his. No matter how many assistants he had working on it, no matter what contributions they made to Hergé, he was the ultimate, you know, auteur of the material. You know, the same way that, say, Hitchcock was the ultimate, no matter how many people were working on a Hitchcock film, to Hitchcock, he was the ultimate you know, the filter of everything that went onto the screen. Right. So, so yeah, at this time, I mean, I guess, you know, it wasn't, you know, he's working by himself in Belgium. He doesn't know how American, I mean, even when did American comics start? The early 30s, but when did Superman start? 38? Mm-hmm. So, you know, the idea of an assembly line isn't even, you know, in his, in his mindset yet, because it's not even happened. I mean, this book was started in 35 and to 37, so it's happening pre-Superman. So it's interesting that he's kind of creating this sort of comics, you know, himself. So everything he's doing, he's doing just from his own uh, mind, you know. He's right. not following someone else's uh, path to where he's to where he's getting. So, you know, for us to stand back and go, why didn't he get a colorist? Cause, well, but it probably didn't occur to him and said, this needs to color. He probably thought, I have to color this now? You know, he didn't think, he didn't say, oh, I can hand this off to my colorist after the inker finishes. Right. You know, so it's, I guess it's just the way he looked at it, you know. Also, um, so with, with the Blue Lotus, the compromise there was color cover and then about four or five inserts inside that were color. So like a full page drawing of, say, uh, you know, a Shanghai market scene mm-hmm. would just be in color. It would have nothing, you know, it wouldn't have anything to do with the story per se, but it would just be kind of a, a scene from it, you know, that would fill a page with color. Right. And so that was kind of the compromise. So he would provide four plates or pages with like a full drawing that could be colored. And at that time, it was, instead of being four color process, what Casterman had was a three color process. So the drawing, it could be colored in uh, red, blue, and yellow. Those were the colors that he had to choose from. So that may explain why, when you look at the book, why the Thompson's suits are yellow and blue, mm. because that was that was a color he could use for those plates. So it became a dominant color when it was re- recolored later on to follow that already established color pattern. So I mean, actually, when he looked at the book after it was printed, he loved it. Like he loved what he loved oh, it, how it looked, out, right? and he said he actually said, "This is too good for children." That was what he said about it. And just it. smacked it out of their hands when they picked them <laughs> That's up. That's right. And so now what Castro wanted to do then was they said, well, this is, you know, this is a success. This book's been a success. So we want your next book to be in color. And we want you to go back and color the old books as well. <laughs> and so Erge, I mean, he, and they knew he didn't have a lot of time. Right. And he did a Tintin style faint, just jumped <laughs> out of frame <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. with his feet a sticking straight up. Exclamation mark <laughs> appeared in a bubble over his head. Because <laughs> but they were trying, so they were showing him like letters from booksellers who were refusing to reorder Tintin in America and Tintin in the Congo because they didn't want to get stuck with this unsold black and white stock right. when the color was selling better. And so, so you know, they were making these, rep- you know, these requests for reprints. And so it was around this time when they started reprinting that they, that they requested that he drop the reporter for Le Petit Vantiem from the title. Mm-hmm. So that he was okay with that. So that, that was dropped. And that was also when they approached him and asked him to change the cover of Tintin in America from the... Uh, the Native Americans said on the cover to Tintin on a running board racing through Chicago, uh, you know, on a running board of a car as they're speeding through Chicago, which is way more exciting, obviously. Yeah. But Hergé said no, because he just couldn't stand the idea of, in the story itself, having the Indians dispossessed of their lands by the oil companies and then having them dispossessed of the, the co- cover. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I just felt like, well, no, because, you know, which is interesting to me because it's kind of ironic. 
And I think people look at that cover and are offended by it. When to him, it was a, a, a real moral stand for him to have them mm-hmm. on the cover. Uh, oh, oh, history. And then, um, they also wanted, uh, the other thing they, they also wanted him to continue working for them though, because he was, I mean, he had this completely demanding work, crazily demanding work schedule that he was, had his advertising company. He was working for Le Petit Vantiem and he was also in charge of, of book covers and graphics for their kind of religious titles at Casterman. So for books like, for, with titles like, um, like Little Pierre's Mass or The Golgotha of the Virgin. So he would provide covers for these and, uh, and, you know, graphics and stuff. And so that was also what he was doing. So they knew he was busy. And yet they're, they're piling on this idea of that you're, we want you to go back and, and recolor all this stuff. So, and then they also started to merchandise Tintin. So, so now they're, so now they're wanting to provide like, you know, illustrations of Tintin that can, you know, be made into a puzzle and, uh, can be, uh, they had a Tintin calendar. So it has 12 drawings right there of, you know, pretty massive drawings that you need for, for a calendar. Why couldn't you just use, uh, like the covers of, Things or other well, there things. wasn't twelve covers yet. Okay, but there must be some something you could have lifted from somewhere else for that twelve. That's just me. I'm just come on. <laughs> There's something you can do. I mean, maybe some of the TM covers themselves, but you know, maybe you could use those. But they have to be how I don't know how the yeah. Might as well draw twelve new drawings. Yeah, You're right. Okay, here we go. And there was also, you could get a cushion that had an embroidered Tintin and Snowy on it, which would be pretty great. <laughs> that was one of their merchandise things. So kind of like what Walt Disney was doing right. at the same time, where he's merchandising his characters, you know. So back at, Le, now at Levantium Siakla, kind of untethered now that, that Father Wallet was gone, there was uh, this major eruption when like about half the staff left the Petit, or the, sorry, the Levantium Siakla to go to a different weekly magazine called Pays Real, which was run by this guy named Leon de Grel, and who had formed the Rexist party or the Rex party. And basically it was this, it was uh, pretty much a, a fascist party kind of disguised with sort of like far right Catholic tra- trappings, but basically in every other way, it was this very fascist party. And they did have some people elected to it, but 21 members were elected to represent the party. And then the Catholic church came down and said, no, no, these guys are no good. We don't want, you know, we're not behind. We don't support what these people are doing. And then their support really dropped. So then they just went completely far, far right. But de Grel actually expected Hergé to come from uh, the Vantium Sacla and join him at oh, this okay. magazine, which Hergé fortunately did not do. Uh, though he felt like he was friendly with him because he was a former associate of the paper. And it was de Grel who sent the newspapers from Mexico uh, that Hergé first saw American cartoons. So he did kind of owe him in a way he felt. But... Yeah, no. Not that much. Not that much at all. So now, the other thing that happened, so now in December 35, he's starting, he's starting his new, The Broken Ear. That's his new sequel is starting. Then he gets a visit from two uh, of these French fathers uh, who run Courveillant, which is Valiant Hearts, which is the Catholic, uh, the French Catholic um, weekly that runs Tintin in, in, in uh, France. And so... Now, even if Hergé didn't want to listen to these guys, they were his only foothold in, in the French market. So yeah. he kind of had to listen to them. So they came and they weren't very happy with uh, Tintin. Why was that? Because Tintin was, didn't have a mum or a dad and he did not go to school. So what they wanted, what they wanted him to do was to uh, create a new series uh-huh. that would run alongside Hergé. Right. They would feature the hero would, could be boy or girl. They didn't care. But it had to have like a brother or sister uh-huh. and a mom and dad yep. and a pet, a family pet. Sure. Like a dog or cat. Okay. And that was, that was what they wanted. 
So And it was called the generics. That's right. So Hergé, you know, he didn't want to disappoint them, obviously. Uh-huh. So he created uh, a new series called Josette and Jocko, which is about a brother and sister and their pet monkey. And the monkey was based on this monkey that he a toy monkey that he had in his house that was he was using for an advertising campaign. And so he just kind of looked at this monkey and went, "Oh, that'd be a good pet." So it is Jocko. So that and the monkey was called Jocko that was in this advertising campaign. So he just stole the name from that and gave it to this monkey. And so uh, he started. Um, so the first story was called the Mystery Ray, and it ran from 19th of January 36 until June of 1937. So pretty much the whole time he was doing the Broken Ear, he was also drawing uh, Josette and Jocko, plus Quick and Flupka, right? Plus. Material for Castleman. Now, Josette and, and, and Jocko. Yeah. Wait, Josette and who? Joe. Joe. Comma. Comma. Zet. Zet. And Jocko. And Jocko. Yeah. All right. Now, and these kids and their monkey, uh, so they have adventures. I'm assuming adventures. Yes. And then they break from those adventures to go to school. And then they visit mm. their parents and acknowledge, Mom and Dad were cool with us going out and having adventures with our monkey, right? Okay, back to school. Now, back to solving a mystery. Back to school. Back to the parents. Well. Sounds good. Hergé... I mean, he quick he quickly grew very like kind of bored of of the, these characters. Yeah, and he, he he himself said he said it bored me terribly. These parents who wept all the time as they searched for their children who had gone off in all directions. <laughs> the characters didn't have the total freedom enjoyed by Tintin. Yeah, and then I think that's we mentioned why they this, kill off parents in every uh, children's right. uh, literature uh, there is. I think we mentioned every this Disney last movie, week yeah. though, but he said, "Think of Jules Reynard's phrase: Not everyone can be an orphan." How lucky for Tintin! He is an orphan, and so he is free. So that was Hergé's feeling about about those characters. Right. And I and uh, I don't um, yeah I don't disagree with him. I think I I don't think the Josette and Jocko st- stories are bad. They're actually kind of fun. Um, they but they are kind of there is a little bit of teething that creeps into them because it is kind of that parents worried, kids get into a scrape. Usually, just like Tintin, a completely unbelievably almost suicidal scrape. Yeah. And then. Parents are worried. Mm-hmm. They get, you know, they get kidnapped, and so everyone's searching for. You know, it is kind of like that. It does kind of. It doesn't have Tintin's, and also it isn't as funny as Tintin because I think he felt kind of constrained by who who he had marketed for uh, more than Tintin. You know, Tintin was very much his baby, and I think you know, other than giving him directions that he wanted him to write about, well, they didn't interfere very much in like the content. You know, so if you look at something like. The land of the Soviets, it hardly feels like someone who's like under the thumb of a Catholic priest, right? You know, it's so full of like, you know, trains crashing into people and, you know, uh, prison escapes and all kinds of crazy nonsense that it just doesn't feel like you're, he's, was that straitjacketed by the sort of idea of this sort of dominant Catholic, you know, control. Whereas obviously he felt differently about Josette and Jocko where he was aiming it. You know, consciously aiming it towards a market, and that's very yeah, restricted. Yeah, created for the wrong reasons. That's right. Well, there's a, there's two problems with with that. One is, uh, as you say, the the reason you don't have the parents is because you're terrible parents. Your your children are in danger, and you're not helping them. Yeah. So you're terrible parents. Now, are were those children? Were they uh, about the same age? Yeah, they're brother and sister. Well, brothers and sisters aren't necessarily the same age. There could be older brother, younger sister. Why I'm saying that is, if older brother goes, I want to get an adventure, and I'm bringing a younger sister, then brother's a jerk. 
because now they're both in mortal danger. He's a terrible brother. Well, they're they're so, like ten year old or eleven year old kids doing this stuff. So it's no, I understand if they're the same age. Crazy. There's you know, but it, it, the thing about Tintin is he's just getting himself in trouble. When yeah. Tintin makes a bonehead move, the only one that suffers is Tintin. Yeah. So that's fine. You can write that off a lot easier than mm-hmm. well, you shouldn't bring your sister into the haunted house. Yeah. And the monkey. <laughs> Maybe they were okay with the monkey. The monkey can take care of himself and he can jump out. Sure. But the other problem he is... He can the, throw poo like nobody's business. The more specific you make the family life, the less uh, uh, the reader can project themselves. Like, mm-hmm. almost anyone can project themselves onto Tintin, even if they are they are a girl. Yeah. They can go, yeah, I could imagine having an adventure with a dog, and here we go. Yeah. But if it's, now i got to do it with my brother, and I've got this specific, and my parents have this dynamic, now you're... Now yeah. you can't. You, you're limiting, you know, the fantasy element. You are limiting the fantasy element, and then the parents, you have to explain how the parents can be in India, you know, for one adventure, and, you know, and building a, a Stratos ship for in the next adventure. I mean, the dad is an engineer. Right. But, you know, he's an engineer who builds dams, and an engineer who builds planes. What kind of engineer is that? I don't know. The... And he solves all his problems <laughs> using a dam. Yeah. It's all dam-related problems. The kids are about to drown, but luckily dad builds a dam. And everything's going to be just fine. Yeah, there's a few books that, uh, a few of them are were available. I don't know if they're still available, but they were available I'd in English. I'd be very curious to see some of that. Okay. So are we getting now to the story itself? Let's get started. Just before we do that, I just want to All interrupt right. one more time. Please do. You can't interrupt your own show. Last week, we, we were talking about a mystery about the back cover of uh, The Adventures of Tintin, the English ones. And it just blew my mind. Why is the Blue Lotus way over there in the corner on top of all the other, other books out of sequence? Okay. And then it occurred to me... This is an older grid that they've made because the Blue Lotus came out in '85. It was one of the last books to come out that were of Tintin translations. So they'd already made this grid of all the books that had already been re- reissued. Okay. And then, then that Blue Lotus, they're like, "Oh, well, let's put it over in the corner." There we go. So that's why it's like that. So it doesn't finally, work linearly, but okay. That's why, because you know, it blows our minds as not only neurotic comic collector types. Yeah. Why books are... I'm calling an alarm on this one. Yeah. It's very alarming what they've done here. (laughs) The siren call. (laughs) That's right. Go save people. And so, um, you know, because, like, the Blue Lotus was was translated in in 83. That means that Cigars of the Pharaohs was out for more than uh, almost 20 years in English. Avail, you know, available for almost 20 years before people could read the continuation of it. Right. This is a confusing jigsaw puzzle that uh, took yeah. a lot of decades before so for it us, could be put together. Yeah, for us as like comic book collector types who need things in chronological order, we don't understand like old-timey adults who didn't even think of the world in that way. You know, they're just kind of like, yeah, the kids aren't going to be too interested in a book about China. Let's not bother with that one. Let's do the one with the shark. Yeah, the shark submarine. That looks like a good one. We'll do that one first. You know, they weren't thinking in terms of chronology. Right. Like, all those books Except are... this one ends with, well, I'm off to China now. Yeah, Cut but... to, no, There's no there. guarantee that the Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure, which are also a, a continuing series, we could look back and see, are there, is there, there's no guarantee those books were translated anywhere near each other. Well, I would hope published. something like Destination Moon and the next one, whether on the moon, would be back-to-back. Otherwise, that'd be very the later The later ones are more regularly trans... were more regularly translated in a in a in a certain time period compared to the early ones. The early ones are the ones that have the very strangest... Okay. Uh, well, I'm very happy that uh, my OCD is satisfied by my uh, modern edition uh, by Edgemont uh, having them all in the correct order. Yes. So very happy uh, <laughs> with that. And uh, and here here we go. We're going into it. Uh, put, put the book wherever you want it. Your lap, 
uh, a musical stand in front of you. Out the window. Uh, maybe have your butler hold it if you're very rich. And uh, let's just uh, go to page one. Now, first of all, before we, uh, you know, get right into, right into, uh, what did you think of this uh, one in general? Do you like this story? Oh, yeah. Do you? Okay. Why, uh, why do you say that? Now, this one, this one didn't, uh, this one felt like uh, going over a lot of ground that, that uh, we've been through before. I felt like I felt like uh, we we playing o- over scenarios that I've seen in previous Tintins, and I yeah. haven't read a lot of Tintin. Yeah. But now I'm going. I'm at the firing squad again. I'm going through a race through the hills using the same kind of device that we've had there again. Yeah. Uh, I'm on that boat one more time. It felt <laughs> like uh, if it was a movie company, I'd go. Well, we've got this footage. Let's just play it again. Yeah. That's what it sort of felt like. And there was no. There was nothing like in the last book, the Blue Lotus. There was no scenes of China, you know, what, like in the Blue Lotus, when you see scenes of China, you go, wow, like there's some gorgeous, oh my gosh, that really sets the stage. Yeah. And there's nothing really in this one that you go, wow, look at that. Mm-hmm. No, it's a lot of people talking and action and, and running and people putting on jackets and Tintin always getting there 10 minutes late. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a yeah. lot. Yeah. You know, and then Tintin. Well, those are plot, that's a plot device, obviously. It but, is a plot device. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. But it, it's a lot of the Tintin books, uh, sort of function as a travel log. And it's like, now we're in, now, uh, we're in Africa. Mm-hmm. Or we're, mm-hmm. sorry, we're in the Congo. Yeah. You know, and we're seeing, uh, amazing things. And in this one, I don't think we see the amazing things that we normally see in a Tintin book. Well, two things. One is, yes, that's true. There's no, there was no Chang for him to go to and, you know, to get that kind of in-depth, uh, research or understanding of 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 South America. So it's more just based on his kind of surface understanding. Mm-hmm. You know, he's compared to the earlier books so in America or Congo, it is m- better researched than than those books. You know, like uh the thing is is that say Cigars of the Pharaoh, mm-hmm. you know, it feels more sophisticated because it was done much later. You know, that book was redone in 1955. So it was redrawn and re you know kind of replotted much later in, in, in Hergé's career. So that book feels, it's a lot more sophisticated feeling. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of st- stuck right in the middle of these books. So it's a, kind of a weird scenario where you have a book that is kind of strange. Like, Scars of the Pharaoh, it's kind of has a travelogue, but it also is very superficial. It's basically almost all movie cliches of these various places, right. you know. And the fact that it feels more sophisticated than it does is because I think it just was done more in a more sophisticated manner. The Broken Ear... You know, we're reading a book that he wrote at that time. There's no, even when it was reformatted for color, it was basically just them snipping the frames and reconfiguring them on the page and adding yeah. a few drawings to fill it out. But you look at like Cigars of the Pharaoh, and obviously you got the cover there, which mm-hmm. is an amazing scene yeah. with all of the uh, you know explorers who went yeah. in the first. Yeah. I can't think of anything in this book that I go like, oh, that scene was wow. That I can't think of any real grabbers. Yeah. I can't think of a lot of character, new characters that are in this that I go, oh, I'd love to see them again. Yeah, not really. You know, it's it 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 fills the gap between I guess this one and the next one. Mm-hmm. It's fine. There's nothing yeah. particularly wrong with it, but there's nothing. Oh wow. Yeah. You know, it doesn't seem yeah. to take Tintin up a up a level. The other thing is, it actually it's actually a um has a lot of political commentary in it. It details yes, an it actual sure does. it details an actual war that was happening at that time that's that was another problem i had was it felt like this feels like political satire or something that i don't know about yeah so i'm sure at the time when this was coming out ah i get where we're going yeah but i don't actually it was little report at the time it was okay place between it was between bolivia and paraguay Mm -hmm. this war called the gran chaco war and i mean a hundred thousand people died in this border skirmish that was created by petroleum companies playing both sides against 
against yeah. each other to try to to get control it of come, these oil fields. It comes across like really good satire, it's, but of yeah. something I don't know. So something that was happening, yeah, but it was very underreported. There was this uh, this kind of trenchant satirical uh, magazine in Belgium called La Crapio, which means the mortar shell, and it was boy oh boy, it's the end days here, folks. <laughs> We hope we're going to be able to make it to the end of the series. No, we're we're right next to a lot of ambulances and fire trucks. So yes. please bear with us. So, um, yeah. So he was, you know, he was reading these uh, articles in this magazine. So it wasn't really something that was generally known. It wasn't like a big deal in newspapers or showing on newsreels. So he was kind of exposing something, kind of like with Manchuria. Mm-hmm. He was kind of talking about something that wasn't in the forefront of everyone's minds. So in that sense, it's kind of interesting. But yeah, I think your I think your criticism is 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 true. I feel like the variations that he rings on these stories are better than in the other ones. So that he is improving, you know, compared to say Tintin in America, he is improving on on some of the business and stuff that he likes to yeah. put in in between the the commentary. You know. Yeah, I felt like with Tintin in America, he did really good commentary on you know when the Indians uh, got the oil and they got uh, they got you know taken advantage of, and they did that very fast in the comedic. Like yeah. use use yeah. comedic methods to show what actually would have happened in in those scenarios and what yeah. has happened in those scenarios, but it was clear. And here I was like, oh, he's using the same methods, but I just don't know quite what it is. Yeah. So yeah, it was that. All right, now you are going here. Let's just say the differences between what David and I are reading from. I'm reading from the Edgemont uh, English edition. You are reading. I'm reading from the Casterman French. French edition. Because, la la, Dave speaks French. Okay. <laughs> I read French. So we're starting off at the Museum of Ethnology, is that right? Yes. All right. And some uh, nice looking, Eth- nice looking masks, you know, we got uh, some painted posts. Uh, and we're seeing a, a, a Rumbaya, am I getting that right? Because I got to say it many times in this <laughs> podcast, a Rumbaya fetish. Yes. Uh, that's there. And that's going to feature prominently in this, uh, in this story. So even looking at this first page, you can see where Hergé was was doing research. He's not just drawing out of his mind yes. uh, kind of totems or masks and stuff like that. These are obviously images that he's researched because he, after he did the Blue Lotus, he started to keep a, a cuttings file of various things that he thought would be interesting and stories. So if he saw something, and he was also an early subscriber to National Geographic, so mm-hmm. he would go through that and he would cut out pictures that he thought were interesting that would make, uh, you know, fun story images or make a good jumping off point for a story. The other thing that's interesting is Hergé was a big fan of Hitchcock, and uh, so he puts himself in the story. So if you look in panel two, you'll see a little man wearing a, a beige raincoat in the background of the, his blonde hair, and he's holding yeah. his hat. That's Hergé. Oh, neat. So that's his cameo in this in this story. Very cool. Now, something else they do here, which which I like, is we're cutting back and forth between the guard who is closing the museum and, mm-hmm. and Tintin starting off his uh, his day. Yeah, that's right. Wearing his uh Chinese pajamas. So kind of a uh, callback to the Blue Lotus. So what time of day is this? If it's late it's late enough that it's uh it's time to close a museum, but did Tintin sleep all day? No, no, no. If you look, you see he the guard locks the doors. Yeah. Then the dark of the museum, there's a guy with a flashlight. Yeah. Then the alarm clock rings. So now we know it's morning. So that's night. Okay, so this has taken all so, night long. Yeah, so the is... guy is working all night long. No, all no, right. no. So he's come back to work. Oh, he's come back to work. Okay. And now he's sweeping the floor. He's opening the museum. He's getting everything ready. Right. That he sees the fetish is missing, which is uh, indicated by a balloon with upside down question marks and stars and swirly things. And then he runs. And then we see Tintin doing his, his morning 
calisthenics to a radio program. Okay, I see where I made the mistake. Because okay. he's locking the door with people outside. That's right. And then the next panel we see him in, he's inside yeah. sweeping. And you're saying in the time that has passed then, he has gone home. Yeah. He has come back in the morning. That's right. All right, fair enough. That was a little unclear for me. That's right. All right, so Tintin... It closes at 5 o'clock, right? So, so... Tintin, well... Okay, yes. And Tintin is uh, doing his calisthenics. Uh, saying, you know, that's the way to wake up in the morning and mm-hmm. then goes to have a bath. Actually, I like that uh, Snowy does calisthenics yeah. as well, or at least tries. <laughs> tries anyway. He kind of falls over, but, yeah, but he does know, his best. It's hard for a dog he to do that. He does his best. Well, on the, on the, well, we're going to get this story started now because mm-hmm. on the radio, uh, we're talking now about the, the loss of that uh, object, that fetish statue we were just talking that's about. That's right. And uh, Tintin, nice shot of Tintin running down the stairs, putting on his coat. Good, uh, good action shot there. We so, like to see Tintin running. So I agree with you there that I like how it does intercut between. So we see the museum, we get that established, we see the fetish, mm-hmm. the guard locks up. Then we do the intercutting between the guard and his reaction, and then we hear what he saw with through Tintin's ears when he hears it on the radio, which is something that. I don't know if we talked about it very much, but it's something that Hergé loved to do in his stories was to provide exposition through media. So it might be a radio broadcast or a newspaper column or later on TV or a newsreel. Is this an easy way for him to give us quick exposition or to, you know, move the plot along, which I always like that, you know. It's interesting because it's like, it's almost like he's moving out of the idea of literature where stories could be told through letters. Right. You know, and into this new thing where it's not just letters. We do have letters in this book, but we also have radio broadcasts, newspaper articles, etc. So it's interesting. Yeah. All right. So uh, Tintin is uh, very curious about this. He seems to have gone beyond being a reporter, as you say. He seems yeah. more detective-y. I don't know what his motivation yeah. is for doing this, but it feels like he, he wants to figure this out. This is actually the last book that he's referred to as a journalist. Oh, is he a journalist in this? Yeah. Okay, sorry. I didn't, uh, I didn't spot that. So uh, he goes to the museum. And, uh, he's, uh, t- and is told that the director of the museum is uh, speaking to the police. And the police are our old friends, Thompson and Thompson. Yeah. Yes. Now, uh, something that's just, uh, and again, it's a, it's, a, it's a nit that I'm going to pick okay. here. Uh, it works verbally, but I don't think it works in print, where uh, Tintin goes, Great Snakes, the Thompsons. Because it's not the Thompsons, it's Thompson and Thompson, because they spell their names yeah. differently. It's like if someone smelled, spelled it Smith, and someone spelled it with a S-M-I-T-H, and then someone spelled it with a Y, you couldn't go, the Smiths, because they're not the same name. So in, so in this book, in the French, the original French version, he says, basically says, well, this is a surprise. Ah, uh, very good. Doesn't say their names. Well, uh, good for the French version. <laughs> <laughs> because I disagree with that. So, uh, so uh, yep, the the Thompsons are on the case and seem uh, fairly competent. Yes. At the at this point, checking stuff out, but they've got really no leads. You know, uh, the Arumbaya fetish uh, has no in, in uh, instinctive value. Uh, the solution is quite simple. He says it was removed by a collector, or to be precise, it was collected by a remover. I like when they do that. Yeah. I like that kind of yeah. business. So Tintin's <laughs> doing some research himself. Checking yes. out a book, the Travels so, in the Americas. So the Arambea tribe, or Ayambaya tribe, was made up by Hergé. Okay. Something he just made up himself. The statue itself is actually based on a real, uh, actual Chimu pre-Columbian statue that was in the Brussels Royal Museum of Art and History. So I guess he saw it there, did some sketches of it, or took it from a, a brochure or whatever. And just used it for his story. It did not have a broken ear, though. That was his okay. his addition. Well, so I like if you're going to make a, a tribe that's kind of uh, vicious and uh, you know shooting poison at people, then yeah. uh, it's good to make one up. Yeah, yeah. So you're not uh, you know 
You're not uh, using a real one. Yeah. So uh, Tintin's reading a book about the, these folks and learns about uh, their terrible vegetable poison, which paralyzes one br- one's breathing. Uh, and uh, he's really he's really into this book. Uh, <laughs> Snowy is falling asleep at the, at the <laughs> thing of it. And inside the book, there's a picture of the fetish or a similar fetish. Yes. Uh, now we cut to the next morning. And no, it's the fetish because it has a broken ear. Very good. But at this point, uh, Tintin doesn't know that, right? That it has a broken ear? Oh, it's the very, very one. No, he does know that. Okay, good. All right, so it's the next morning, and the guard's going back, and we have another nice comedic take where, oh, he's (laughs) flipping out. Tells the director, it has been returned. And what I like, the director is so so harried, so in such a state that he is stirring his spoon with his pen and has his spoon behind his ear. That is, he's also putting his coat on backwards. Yeah, in the next scene, when he's running, he's putting his coat on backwards, yeah. (laughs) That's very good. Uh, the, uh, Hergé puts a coat on a person well. Yes. Frontward or backwards? He can do he can do action very well. We'll talk about that in a bit. Right. A bit more. I, I, there's something I know you dislike the uh, use of the firing squad scene again, but I think it's brilliant, and uh, there's some really good poses there. There so are some really good poses. We've been there. Okay. All right. Here we go. We'll get to that when we get to that. Uh, and so Tintin shows up uh, along with Thompson and Thompson at the museum. And there is a letter there saying, uh, Dear Director, I bet a friend I could pinch something from museum. I won my bet, so here's your fetish back. Uh, please for, for forgive my foolishness and any trouble I have caused. Sincerely, X. Oh, he signed his name, though. Mm-hmm. Very so honest. you just have to look up X. There can't be that many people named X. Yeah. And everything should be fine. So Tintin's looking at the statue, but he smells a rat. Yeah. Isn't quite sure. Isn't quite sure why. In fact, he's so distracted, he does the old comedic walk into a pole. What's what's interesting about this time in, of Hergé and his art is that he's good enough that he doesn't have to redraw it for, for republication, unlike in Congo or America. But it's not quite there yet. So there's a few drawings where you're just kind of like, hmm, not that great a tint in there. But good enough, I guess, for that day. Also, I feel like I've seen this walking into the, a pole and then I do beg your pardon, madam, thing before. Have we seen that before? Maybe well, with the madness juice or something walking into uh, Well, no, we saw it with the vent. professor Professor uh, in the, cigar, the Cigars of the Pharaoh. Right. There's uh, uh, Professor prof- Sarcophagus? Yeah. I was going to wanted to call him a Cyclone, but yeah, because it's Very different than French. French but, name, yeah. Yeah. but yeah, so we see him in doing similar business. And... And as you say, Hergé had no difficulty repeating bits because we'll see a absent-minded professor again. Right. In the same story, we have the kind of the kind of distracted professor, the curator of the museum. Then we'll also get a, a strangely this kind of a half-page scene of an absent-minded professor meeting a parrot. So <laughs> it's very odd. Like and we've like, had talking parrots before too. He does like to repeat bits. Talking birds. Uh, so Snowy's giving uh, Tintin a little bit of uh, scolding for walking into the pole and just walks into a garbage bin himself. <laughs> oh, that's Snowy. What a hypocrite. So. Uh, Tinson's now filling us in, uh, sitting down and, uh, talking to Snowy, but filling us in, that the, uh, the way you know that the statue that was returned is not the correct one is, the correct statue has a broken ear. And, uh, old Snowy's like, oh dear, here we go again, Sherlock Holmes on the trail with a big smile on his face. Yes. <laughs> so further along in the news, why don't you, why don't you read this bit? I like that he's, uh, I like that Snowy is letting us in. He is kind of our, our entry into the yeah. world of Tintin. Because his comments are no longer to Tintin. They're almost to himself or to us as the reader. Because Tintin no longer reacts to what it, to what Snowy says. It's made t- uh, Snowy less of a complainer, too, in this one. <laughs> so, I mean, Snowy, you know, would get mad at uh, at a snowflake, you know, in, in past in past issues. But no, he seems fine. So uh, what's going on next year? So uh, 
Well, if you want me to add, so uh, in this next scene, uh, Tintin's reading the newspaper this time. So let's have a little exposition come out of the newspaper. He's reading about a, a local artist who has died in, of uh, asphyxiation, and for some reason, uh, it uh, he was an expert at making statuettes in wood, and so that gets Tintin's yeah. curiosity up. And so uh, Tintin starts doing this thing. He's thinking so hard, it's hurting his head. There's stars, <laughs> colored stars coming out of his head. So he, then he goes, he travels to the uh, the uh, the sculptor's uh, residence, I guess, and right. talks to his landlady. Who's sweeping up. Who's <laughs> sweeping. Taking the tragedy in stride. Yeah. And she tells him about uh, that he had a parrot, and the parrot somehow survived this and the gas. I don't know how the parrot lived and the guy died, but mm-hmm. maybe, it was, maybe the cage was near the window. Also lets him know that the guy never drinks. That's right. Never drinks. As you do after someone's been killed. Just like, yeah, by, by the, the way, way, doesn't drink. Not a drinker. All right. I don't know whether that has to do with anything. But apparently, did could not sleep without a lot of junk around his bed. <laughs> yeah. It's it's funny because the room ha- seems to have a lot of room that you could put some of that stuff yeah. in. But let's yeah, just all no. shove it right next to the bed. Yeah. And I like that he has a triangle for drawing right beside his bed. Yeah. Just in case during the night he feels like doing some geometric patterns. Well, he also might he also might want to you know uh, play that uh, horn that's right there, <laughs> or play yes. some horseshoes. Yeah. So he's ready. Like when he wakes up, boom, he is ready to go, no matter what uh, his impulse is. He's ready to go. So uh, so Tintin's of course doing now. He, like you say, he is more of a detective now. So he finds uh, a bit of cloth in the room yeah. and a cigarette butt. And makes them very suspicious. I like the way they point out the cigarette butt, which is a, mm-hmm. a circle of the cigarette butt, and then just a little arrow pointing to the floor. So, yeah, yeah it's a yeah. nice little way of doing things detective-wise. Uh, and art-wise as well. I like, uh, well, I've always liked how Hergé is willing to use a balloon, a word balloon with a picture in it rather than, than waste words, you know. Yeah. So, so she asks him... Uh, speaking of wasting words, let me get a huge uh, bunch oh. of talk from, from, uh, from Tintin. And uh, he's... Uh, well, you you say what he's talking about. Here. Okay, all right. Uh, he goes. Uh, it was a funny accident. Uh, the gas was whistling out of the ring. So if the the tap was on when Balthazar uh, went to bed, he'd have heard it, unless he was drunk. But he never, never? touched the stuff. That's right. Uh, never touched drink. Uh, therefore, uh, someone turned the tap on after the sculptor was dead, since the gas wasn't strong enough to kill the parrot, and uh, that someone was wearing something made of gray flannel and smoking a cigarette. Good. Keep it going, Tintin. Uh, uh, witness the piece of cloth and the cigarette end, which couldn't have belonged to the victim. He only smoked a pipe, and he wore a velvet suit. So Mr. Bal- Mr. Balthazar was murdered. He was murdered because he probably made a replica of the Arumbaya fetish for someone, and someone didn't want him to talk. Someone? Someone? Who can that someone be? How can I find out? And then, great snakes! Why not? Uh, startling uh, Snowy, who has been listening to this entire monologue. Yeah. And then off Tintin goes to he run. He probably stopped paying attention at some point. <laughs> yeah. So it is a huge leap in uh, in logic to go from man killed, sculptor in wood, to he made the Aaron by a fetish dupe replica, and someone killed him in order to keep him quiet. Right. Wow. This feels like, you know, when you write your plot out, yeah. and I got to get to this point, how can I do it? How about if I just say it out loud? Yeah, you could. It's okay. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Whenever you have the big exposition dumps in these stories, you go, I guess you got to do this, and yeah. it's fine. But it's nicer if you could break it up. Anyway, I'm not going to give Hergé notes. Moving on. Back to the landlady. <laughs> well, one thing to remember is in these stories is that they were still coming out weekly. Yeah. And so there does have to be a little bit of exposition that kind of catches people up on what was happening before Right, a little well. bit. But when you get those panels that are all yeah. dialogue and then tiny head in the corner going, let me tell you everything <laughs> yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're going we're going back, 
and uh, Tintin's asking the landlady, uh, I'll buy the parrot. Well, oh, by the way, we haven't set up that the parrot is for sale. Yes. She's been looking after the parrot. It's yeah. a beautiful bird. Uh, wants, uh, wants a good home for the bird. Tintin's going to supply that home. Here we go. But in the first of a series of, oh, so just, close. Just missed it. Just by that much. Uh, sorry. Uh, the, uh, uh, gentleman just bought it a moment ago, but he's over that way. If you want to do a beautiful Hergé run cycle, please <laughs> do that right now. So off goes Tintin and Snowy. Yes. And so now what I, what I like in my, and reading the French one is that, uh, okay, we have a kind of amusing sequence where this character who's purchased a parrot is carrying it along in a box. We, we find out because with no air holes, with no air holes that the box starts insulting people. And even though it can't see anything, the parrot seems to want to yell out. Uh, now, in the English version, it's great greedy guts. Yeah. And there happens to be a big fellow walking by at this moment, and he hears his great greedy guts. In the French version, it's a gross plein de soup. So I have no idea how that grow, which... Large? Large, but then full of soup. Large soup urn, maybe. Maybe you're large? a big soup... Tra- yeah, Yeah, weird. I don't know what it's... It's very strange. So, uh, so of course, this insults the, 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 the big gentleman, and he... Uh, First, he warns the guy. Yeah, that's enough of that. He says, "What do you mean?" Yeah. You know? And then uh, now in the now in the French version, this we indicate this person is is not French by instead of having him say "je," he says "ye." He has a "y" for the the "je" sound for you know saying "je." Okay. And then in the uh, English version, of course, he adds the "e" sound to to like his and stuff like that. Or that's how you indicate that someone's Spanish, right? He's very good. But. Uh, so then the the uh, gentleman's walking away when suddenly it's yelled again. Now it's now the fight's on. Yeah, the guy, uh, the big man, uh, has beaten the uh, the other guy so hard he's broken his cane, snapped <laughs> yes. it. This is a this is a brutal beating. But the parrot now is getting away. Tinson's witnessing all this. Yeah, and both him and Snowy are trying to grab the uh, parrot. Parrot is not having any of this. Yes, parrot escapes. Spanish gentleman upset. What a mix up. What a mix up. Thanks, Tintin, for trying to catch his bird. Yes, he doesn't know who Tintin is yet. So then we get... He's very polite for someone that we're going to find out bad things about later on. So then we get a funny little bit of business that really has nothing to do with anything at all, which is just a professor leaving his house, Yeah, being told by his wife and or maid, I would think a maid, because he's he's too absent-minded to be married. So he's a bachelor professor, Mm -hmm. and uh, so he's told by his... His, you know, his uh, housekeeper, you know, don't forget your, your jacket, professor, and don't forget your glasses. And he says, well, my glasses are in my jacket, so it's fine. But then he hilariously puts on her jacket, oh. leaves the house. Well, at least he's got his umbrella. He's got right? his umbrella. Oh, wait. Oh, it's a cane that he's holding up like an umbrella while he gets rained on. Right. Then he hears uh, the car- the parrot calling to him. In French, parrots say, poué, poué, poué. Instead of pork, pork, here in English. And so then uh, he, the... Uh, of course, the, the half-blind, absent-minded professor climbs up a lamppost to take a closer look at the parrot. The parrot talks to him, and then he thinks it's a person. Well, there we go. The hilarity. Plot but not moved forward too much. Not, but we've... not an inch. No. <laughs> not an inch. Besides that the parrot is out and about. That's all we need. That's all we know. Yep. Then we cut to uh, Tintin putting it out in the paper, uh, looking for this parrot. And to the a Spanish gentleman. Who, so far, we think is probably maybe not a bad guy. Yeah. Also doing He's the same also, thing. Also doing, uh, making an ad. And then we have a man and his wife. They found this uh, parrot, and they are not happy to have this parrot. <laughs> I believe from this scene that the housekeeper of uh, Monsieur Balthazar, the artist that was killed, was slightly exaggerating when she said it was a good parrot. <laughs> well, maybe it's a parrot that doesn't like being in a box I with no think, air holes. I think it's just a parrot that's a bit of a jerk. 
And so then... Really? Because previously, when talking to the absent-minded professor, yeah. says, good morning, how do you do? Pleased to meet you. He's quite a nice... That's true. Quite a nice fella. That's true. You're it's right. when you put him in a, a box. Him in a box. And then he's like, hey, greedy guts, let yeah. me out, you jerk. <laughs> well... Maybe that's the case. So then... Uh, Tintin's reading the paper again. He loves his newspaper. Well, for, yeah, the man decides he's going to return this bird to the first person that he, he can return it to. Well, he says so, one is closer. Yeah. So that oh, makes sense. No, yeah. no, He just wants to get rid of the bird. So yeah. he heads over to uh, Tintin's apartment and returns the bird to him. And gets a large reward. A large reward. And so does Tintin. A bite on the nose. <laughs> that's right. So then... Uh, but I like how he checks first to make sure that there is a parrot in the box. It's smart. Tintin is not trusting. Well, I mean, in past Tintin stories, he'd open it to be a bomb. He's had a hard time, Tintin. He he, Tintin legitimately has trust issues, and he should. Yeah. Everyone is trying to kill Tintin, you know, 23 hours out of the day. So now we had a little bit of business with uh, the professor. So now we have a little business with Tintin, who for no particular reason decides he's going to leave. With the bird in the box. Leaves the bird in the box. Uh, what the? Leaves Snowy with the bird. Snowy usually accompanies Tintin wherever he goes, but he right. leaves them together. The next thing we know, the bird escapes from the box. Oh, Tintin went to get a cage. That's right. So Tintin's getting a cage. He comes back and uh, goes running up the steps just in time to see the bird flying away. What's interesting is in the next panel, we have the two two gentlemen, the guys who are looking for the parrot themselves. And they say that it's at, they find, oh, someone else has advertised for it at this address, 26 Labrador Road. Mm-hmm. Or Rue de Labrador. The first mention of the address of, of Tintin's apartment. Oh, okay. So this is the first time that we know where Tintin lives in Brussels. So oh, we should go visit him. We will. All right. We will. And, and Tintin's having a rough sleep, wondering where that parrot is now. And one of the Maybe go look for him instead of taking a nap. And one of the clues to the this book, this story being a little older and a little from a bit of a rougher art period, you know, not as... He hadn't quite developed his, uh, what would later be called by Joost Fort, the the clear line style is his use of these kind of big black splotches behind things yeah. in order to indicate sh- uh, shadow. He would, he doesn't do that in later books. It's more the color that gives us the, the darkness. And he, I mean, he does a wonderful chiaroscuro effect of the, of the shadows on people, but for some reason he wasn't doing it at this point. So we just get these, we get a silhouette of him, of Tintin. When he hears a noise, he leaves his bedroom. He's carrying the gun, a silhouette shot. Then we get a, shot of him just basically looking like a normal person but with a big shadow behind him yeah and then we see the gentleman who originally had the parrot who's dressed exactly the same and he says raise your hands yeah like tintin tintin always has a gun with him mm-hmm. he's ready yeah you know because he, he needs one i liked earlier by the way that uh, snowy still had a little bit of a wound from the uh from the yeah parrot. yeah so uh tintin's questioning the guy he's surprised saying oh it's you and uh, Karamba is the young man who tried to catch the parrot. So that's the, that's how we're doing that voice now. Yep. That's fine. That's yeah. good. Uh, the bird is mine. You steal him. I make complaint to the policia. And uh, Tintin calls his bluff on there. <laughs> no, we don't need to call the policia. Uh, but then the lights go out. Well, you, but you just see him grabbing a, a knife out of the sleeve of yeah, his coat as well. Yeah, he's doing a little pull. little pull. He's doing a little pull, so we know something's up. While, while Tintin sits on the uh, chair and uh, pulls, uh, has the gun trained on him. So what's weird about this sequence, though, is that when we see the page where the, the two, uh, these two, they turn to be bad guys, are talking to each other, the one guy is hidden behind a newspaper. Yeah. So you're like, who is this mysterious person that he's talking to? I wonder who he could be. And then we have the guy in the apartment. And as he pulls his knife out, his partner turns off the lights. But all we see is his hand reaching around the corner. Yeah, mysterious. So you're wondering, like, who is this mysterious person? Well, now we see him in silhouette. And then Again, he's in very silhouette. mysterious. Yeah. And then they just show him. And it's nothing <laughs> special true. about it. That's true. They do. There's nothing special. That's true. Just that guy. Yeah. Oh, him. Yeah. You know. Why was he hidden? I don't know. 
it's going to be someone, maybe? <laughs> anyway, the guy throws... Raises uh, the suspense, throws, raises the suspense. Oh. Throws a knife at Tintin in the dark. Yeah. Uh, misses. By the way, I think that's a bad plan to pull a knife when a guy's got a gun on you. Hmm? That is literally bringing a knife to a gunfight. But the lights do go out. I understand. And I like out. that. I like that Tintin shoots at him in his apartment. Mm-hmm. Yes. Hopefully, he has the entire floor to himself. <laughs> yeah. And we see Snowy, and Snowy actually looks like he's got a little bit of uh, business on his face. There looks like he might have been still injured from the parrot earlier. <laughs> yes. So now we have the big reveal of a guy we've never met, as you say. <laughs> there we are. And so, then cut to that night at 21 London Road. And a, look, a nice bit of business here. So the landlady, who we saw earlier with her hair, and was I guess it was supposed to be neat, although she just had her hair up at, like olive oil. Now her hair is just a mess. It's just this set of, cur- of you know, of uh, random curls and of uh, sticking off of her head in a kind of strange pattern. And uh, she thinks it's... Uh, now, instead of assuming that this cawing voice coming from the attic is the parrot saying, I am Balthazar... She thinks it's a ghost. Right. So her, the neighbors arm themselves for, against a ghost with a sword. One of them actually has a gun. Yeah, one has a broom. And one has an umbrella. Right. And so they go into the room and find the parrot still calling people Greek greedy guts. And I am that, Balthazar. Telling them that he's Balthazar. I really, I do like this parrot. He's a good looking parrot. No, yeah, he's good. I'm glad he well got drawn. out of the box. And he's well drawn. And so, yes, Tintin reads it. Some, for some reason, this is big. This is news. Yeah, we're getting it's a lot. It's in the paper again. Look, we're getting a lot of the next mornings in this yeah. so far. Yeah. And the next morning brings with it a newspaper mm-hmm. and uh, well-reported stories. Yes, really, this a whole parrot I'm thing. I'm sure is... Tintin gets the paper for free. He was a reporter for years, yeah. Yeah. you know, so it's fine. He's still a reporter. And uh, he always reads the paper like this. What? <laughs> like, that's constantly him reading. While he's eating his toast. <laughs> having his tea, and uh, I'm not sure what else is there. A red can of something. So he heads back over to uh, 21 London Road. Right. and uh, Can't get a cab. Can't get a cab. The guy, can't, you know why? He's a terrible tipper. That's why. <laughs> no, well, he didn't, he, he's wearing his plus fours. He could pull his jacket up and show his leg a little bit and <laughs> get a ride right away. But he no, could. he doesn't do that. Normally when he gets a cab, uh, then the, the cab driver tries to kill him or kidnap him. So, so you know, yeah. he's just had bad experiences with taxis anyway. So showing up, seeing the landlady. As they, oh, that parrot, oh, you're really unlucky, once again. Yeah. The gentleman who bought uh, who bought it yesterday came to collect it again, not ten minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. You know what, Tintin, just set your watch back ten more minutes, and you're going to solve a lot of problems, buddy. Get up ten minutes earlier. Yeah. That's all I'm saying. I'm just thinking back, well, you know what would have made this scene work a little bit better? is if the guy in the apartment was the person we didn't see on the previous page. So we don't know who he is who's sneaking, breaking into, into Tintin's apartment. We could assume that this guy is... We wouldn't know he's connected to the pink no, you're right, fellow. Yeah. They do the sequence, turn off the light. He throws the knife, runs off. We don't need to see them like, together in that, in that sequence there. We could, once again, have the other person hidden or whatever. So then when you get the reveal of them both breaking together, it can be farther down the story. Mm-hmm. I don't know why Ergie didn't hire me. Well, we'll get in that time machine. Fix that up. Uh, Tintin's crossing the street. Almost gets hit by a car. Uh, Snowy yeah. gets a face full of uh, goop. And then someone, someone, oh, passerby gets the license plate number for him. Right. Which is fast thinking. Right, which is 169MW. Uh, uh, and well, that's funny. So that's a British one. In the uh, French version, it's 160.891. Okay. And now what's interesting is that... Uh, if in that interest, not interest, but in that instance, I would not be the person to get the license plate number. 
I would not even think about looking at that. Is that right? I would just be in shock. I wouldn't know what to do. Oh, I'm, I constantly get license plate numbers. You're the fast thinker? I'm not fast thinker. I'm just trained to like look at a license plate and like get it down. Oh, yeah. Well, too much Rockford Files. Sure. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. We'll be doing our Rockford Files cast oh. after that. <laughs> oh, that's, we've got other things to do with our lives, my friend. Okay. So, uh, Tintin's hunting down this, uh, license plate number and, uh, finds the car, but it doesn't seem like the car. And, uh, it, it looks like, uh, the, there's two old men there. Yeah. There's a chauffeur appears and, uh, an old man, uh, with a big, uh, bushy beard. Uh, almost seem like, uh, cigar characters from Thimble Theater. Yeah. They do have that look to them. Yeah. I do like that the chauffeur and the old man both have the same beard. Yeah. It's like they've, he's been in his employee this long. And one of his demands is if you work for me, you will never shave. That's right. Your beard must always be a little longer than mine yeah. or you will be fired. Yeah. Well, Tintin's a little bit upset by this, but uh, drops his notebook and realizes something. Does a big eureka, jumps up. Uh, a woman who is walking a tiny dog pulls the dog up, choking it with a leash. <laughs> Snowy so jumps back. Chaos in the streets. But Tintin knows what's what. If you take that number and turn it upside down, boom, totally different number. Let's go check that and out. And it's interesting that they chose the MW because that works in that situation. And so does the 160891 or 168091 works as well. It's kind of interesting. Um, so, yeah. let's. So, yeah, Tintin races home and looks through a big directory of license plates, which is handy that yeah. they would have such a thing. I mean... Do they have such a thing? I imagine that, I imagine that there is such a thing somewhere, but not accessible to us. As Tintin c- civilians. is a reporter slash detective slash something. Yeah. He's got access to things that we don't know, <laughs> that we shouldn't have access to. Apparently. Well, let's cut to the thugs for a bit and see what they're up to. The goons. Uh, they're, uh, one guy is doing a goony thing, which is playing solitaire. Ah, you know, he's a bad guy because he's playing solitaire. Yeah. Where the other guy is practicing throwing his knife at a, at a board that's looks like about five feet in front of him. Can't hit the target. <laughs> really terrible, uh, knifeman. Yeah. Frankly, by a gun. Buy a shotgun, because you're really bad at this. Yes, something with more with more the uh, width of of. Yeah, he's got the problem that all villains in any uh, heroic story have. He can't shoot straight mm-hmm. because if he could, the story would be three pages long. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's pulling too much to the old right, and so the guy says, "Why don't you just pull it to the left, and then you'll uh, center it?" Uh, I can't argue with that logic, but it makes me mad. Mad, I tells you. And what else makes him mad? This this parrot is really making them angry yeah. so much that he's throwing the knife at the parrot. But yeah. luckily, he's a bad shot, so it's just not affecting anything. Yeah, that parrot is gets on people's nerves. Told you. Oh, oh, he really does. In fact, he bites the other guy, the El Misterioso guy, uh, his finger. And now that guy wants to kill him with a gun. Yeah. But no, no dice. It's there you go. Uh, but the but then the parrot talks and says, "Rodrigo Tortilla, you've killed me." What's that supposed to mean? Now, you were asking what happened to the parrot. Yeah. You know what happened to the parrot now. He's given away the information they needed. I think we know where the parrot ends up. No. We don't have to see it happen. No. They're bad guys. No. They're bad guys. Oh, that would be... What do you think they did with it? Took it to the uh, home for for single parrots? No. What I think the guys did was they left. Because they got business to take care of. They don't care about this parrot. Okay. Parrot. Parrot's smart. Yeah. Parrot's escaped from Tintin's place. Yeah. Parrot's uh, having his own adventure. He's back at Balthazar's. He's fine. Yeah, he's probably back at Balthazar's. <laughs> that's true. And then Tintin's again. Ten minutes too late. So uh, No, he's not. He got all the information he needed. It's true. So uh, we now know... Uh, Rod- you didn't mention he was spying at the window. That's right. We know that Rodrigo Tortilla uh, was the one who uh, killed Balthazar. Yes. That's right. So 
they uh, called the Liberty Hotel Liberty, asked to speak to Mr. Tortilla. Uh, but so, so sorry. He's gone. Yes, to South America. Yes. He went to La Hovre. Hovre. He sailed at midday. What? Yes, the boat. It was called Ville de Lyon. And, uh, and somehow Tintin heard this. How did Tintin hear that? I, they probably were repeating it to each other while they were... Maybe the parrot was saying it. Okay, but no, it looks like they're called, the bad guys are calling the hotel, right? Yeah, yeah. So how's Tintin hearing what uh, the conversation between the hotel and the bad guys? What am well, I he was thinking? listening at the window. Oh, have we established that he was yeah. listening at the window? Remember the knife hits the window? He's, oh, the yes, you're right. Knife. Sorry, that was, a, that was a while back. Okay, you're right. <laughs> So he knows. Uh, so uh, they're uh, they're off to try and uh, get uh, tortilla. Yes, tortilla. Uh, Mr. Tortilla. They stop off at a, a very nice looking uh, airplane mm-hmm. uh, to get to the boat, and uh, and they make it there. And now we're on that boat. And uh, what's great about well, so they're on the flight. We see someone behind them that looks remarkably similar to a certain journalist. Mm-hmm. That we'd already know. Well, we know that Tintin is a master of disguise. Master of disguise. Right. And uh, so, <laughs> it's a good. It's a good bit now where they see him. They see this fellow walking around with sunglasses and a mustache and a cigar, and they're like, "Could that be?" It doesn't look much different than he looked right. as the general. If they read the Blue Lotus, they know that he just has Snowy strapped underneath that jacket. And who knows? He could, they could have read it because apparently his. Yeah. Adventures are available to anyone. Anyone who read. wants to read them, <laughs> even in the reality we, of those adventures. That's right. We established that in Cigars of the Pharaoh. <laughs> right. So this is something they never really do in Sherlock Holmes, which is no one goes like, "Hey, I bet Sherlock Holmes is disguised somewhere around here." Let's. Yeah. Is that it? You think yeah. that's Sherlock Holmes? No. It always just surprises. Yeah, them. they don't reference the fact that his stories are published by the person who's working with Sherlock Holmes, giving away all his secrets week by week. <laughs> <laughs> True. So, yeah, they're uh, trying to check out uh, who Tintin is. They think maybe he's this guy. Maybe he's a guy with an old man with a beard. So, you know, uh, with a beard. Yeah. so they're tracking one guy down, and oh, his wig blows off. That's Tintin, clearly. Clearly. But, uh, you know, they, uh, he tries to throw a knife at him, but uh, misses because he's a terrible shot. Yeah. Uh, and we realize that is not Tintin at all. Well, lucky we didn't kill that guy. What's good, is that, what's good is that you think it could be Tintin. Yes. And so there's a little bit of drama there. And then yeah. and then we have the next sequence where they start following the old man around, who of course put, gets out his deck chair, sits down with his his uh blanket to get some get some sun. Looks very comfortable. Get some fresh air. Yeah. And they climb Looks up, like a bit of a beatnik. They climb up above him, lower down a lasso, get it around his beard, and then pull him up in the air by his beard and then realize Thinking it's a fake beard. Yeah. Realize that's not Tintin. They drop the rope and just run away. So yeah. this poor guy like he's dead. laying in the, the shambles of his chair. Yeah, he's dead. Like the, the the height they've lifted him to, if you lift an old man that high and then drop him into a chair, he's not getting mad. Like he's in the same place the parrot is now. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Like you never see one where like uh, immediately afterwards the guy goes, I'm okay. Because <laughs> that's the end of that guy. Also, that's probably one of the worst ways to get a beard off a guy is to lower a noose down. Try and like snag well, yeah, the because beard. It, there's nothing to make the noose tighten. Yeah, how do you tighten the noose? Exactly. Like you just pull it up, it would just go floop yeah. right through it. Yeah, terrible. We yeah. What you want to do is you want to fake falling, grab the guy's beard. Yeah, well, yeah. there you are. Okay, so Once we again. see them. Uh, we see them talking. We see uh, a character walking by. Uh, the uh, steward, I the suppose. Steward, yes, with a, a red steward. nose. A re- yeah, there we have you got a red? No- oh no, I'm talking about a different one. Sorry, there is the steward, but, but oh, we oh, I sorry, waiter. the waiter. Okay, there's yeah. a waiter. What who's... do you call a waiter on a boat? Is he still a waiter? I don't know. Because steward is like it would be a steward, right? Would it be a steward? Yeah, maybe. Maybe it would be. Because yeah. in a plane, uh, you are right. No. So yeah. Maybe. Anyway, but so we then have they a borrowed steward. that terminology from the boat. So yeah, would all make sense. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, the first steward we see is a bit of a racial caricature from the time. 
So there you go. Take that with whatever grains of salt you want. And then uh, we see a steward who's a bit of a drunk, it looks like. He's got a little little uh, nose that says he enjoys the sauce. And, yeah. And, uh, and the, Another and, stereotype of the time, I guess. Yeah, and the goons say, why don't you sit down and have a drink with us and try to get him, get some information from him. Yeah. Uh, he spills some beans about the passenger in number 17, uh, who has the same name as an omelet. Yes. Wait, tortilla, omelet, omelet, tortilla. <laughs> Ah, now they know they who know. to go and kill. <laughs> yes. They are bad guys. Yeah, and that steward shouldn't be giving out that kind of information. It could get someone killed, and it did. Nice job, steward. Boo to you. So yeah. uh, them now in silhouette form uh, go sneak in. We see, uh, we see, uh, you know, a club being raised, and, yeah. uh, and then a body being thrown overboard. Mm-hmm. In a nice little sequence. And then, and then we have the revelation that Tintin was disguised as the, the steward. Yes. So he was in blackface, and uh, he takes off his wig, and he's got his red hair underneath all the shoe polish or whatever he used, which would not, to me, be that convincing uh, in real life. But anyway, it's, I guess in a story, it's fine. And let's just say that uh, they're making now two more animated Tintin films. Yeah. I'm betting this disguise will not be in either of those. Well, not. It'll be in the second one. Uh, if it is, I will buy you a coke. <laughs> What's will, interesting? It is kind of a sly comment on on that issue, though, in that Tintin is the one character they don't pay attention to. That's right. Yeah. No, it is a it is a good uh, disguise to have. If, yeah. You know, if you don't mind, you know, Tintin being in blackface. So there he is, and it happened. And again, here's your grain of salt. Uh, there you go. So uh, they've got the uh, the goons. Well done. Maybe it would have been better if uh, you'd caught them before they killed a guy, but you didn't. Uh, there you go. After the fact, you've now uh, figured this out. Uh, they go to get him. He is uh, taken away uh, by Colonel uh, Jimenez, uh, regular army. And uh, I think that's the end we'll be seeing of those guys. Nope. Yes. Nope. Wait, wait. <laughs> twist. And actually a pretty good twist. Uh, they're all in it together. They're, they're in all cahoots. Together. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cahoots. That's the worst <laughs> thing for thieves to be in. Cahoots. So, yeah. So, Tintin... Uh, packs up the fetish, gets a gets a, a letter from the mainland mm-hmm. as the boat's sitting in. I don't know if we've mentioned that Tortilla has the fetish, and so they wanted to get the fetish, yeah, which get... is why they killed him. Yeah. So now they have the fetish, now Tintin has the fetish. Okay, yeah. good. So Tintin has Tortilla's fetish, uh, which, by the way, does not have a broken ear. What? So it's automatically the wrong fetish. So yeah. I don't think Tintin notices this, but we do, as a reader, we notice that he has doesn't have a broken ear. But Tintin gets a letter from the mainland t- asking him to come off the boat and come in to answer some questions about this capture of these criminals. And Tintin's nothing if not uh, polite and will uh, go And helpful, that. yeah. So he uh, packs up the fetish, says, goodbye to the captain, I'll see you in a couple of hours. Yeah, 1900 hours? Well, 7 o'clock, not... <laughs> well, it's I, 19, yeah. you can call it either way, I got 1900 sure. hours. Myself. Oh, I see what you're saying, I thought you meant in 1900 hours, like 1900, 1900 hours later I will return. Nope. After a night on the town. So uh, Tintin's there with his yellow suitcase. It's funny that he says that, because in here he just says it's Setur, so he's going to be back at 7. There we go. It's weird. But uh, that's, so, that does sound more efficient, or more official to say 1900 hours. Uh, while Tintin's on the dock, someone does a switcheroo with his yellow... Uh, Valise. How they knew he would have that suitcase, I don't know. Apparently they only have one kind of suitcase in the world. Oh, that's a because good point. L- later it, it on, it sort of feels like someone on the boat has to tell him that, right? Yeah. Unless, yeah, unless there's like a lot of suitcases they've got ready, like whatever suitcase he comes with, we got one that matches, right, <laughs> right. guys? Okay. That's right. That has that has what we have in it. So then uh, he's he's waiting, and uh, he first 
What does he say for uh, when he thinks it's disappeared? What does he say when he he's holding it in his hands and he's like relieved that he first didn't he goes, use it. "Hey, my suitcase." Yeah. Then ah, it's still there. Whew! What a fright. Yeah, he says here. He says, "Jay u showed." So I had heat, <laughs> uh, or I was hot. But I guess that means the same thing. And then what we have uh, two policia uh, yeah. showing up saying, uh, that's him, isn't it? Yeah, he's the one. Will you come with us, senor? Which is always great. When the police show up to pick up Tintin, things always go well. Uh, but he is expecting the police, so things are fine. Uh, and then we uh, learn that, you know, uh, the uh, chief of police, I suppose, uh, has been handed a note in advance uh, saying, uh, you know, that uh, he's, he's there. He, he has a small white dog. Uh, you know, if you don't believe that, uh, you know, this guy is a bad, open his case. He is a spy. He is a bad man. And so Tintin opens the case and sure enough, full of bombs. Yes. Three cartoon bombs. <laughs> that's right. In the nice uh, red uh, kind of, if you got to carry bombs, that's a nice way to carry your bombs. Yeah. And so Tintin, as always happens, is thrown into jail. Because we didn't mention it, but in this scene where the policemen first first see Tintin on, on the quayside, they there's a, a poster behind them that says "State of Emergency." So we mm. in the city of Los Dopicos. So we know that uh, think you know things are happening, and so that's why they're afraid of of this guy with bombs. So he is uh, when they see the bombs, he is called a terrorist, mm-hmm. and uh, put on, and despite his claims of innocence, he is marched off to a prison cell. Sure is. And justice in this country is nothing if not swift. Well, but Tintin's not worried because the boat is uh, coming to pick him up. They'll just fill explain him in, the saying why he's got bombs in his bag. I don't know yeah. how they're going to explain the bombs in the bag. Yeah. You know, or as a suitcase. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, I was going to say, Tintin, he is the bomb. So uh, so someone hands the captain a note uh, basically saying, hey, I don't need your ride. I'm fine. Yeah, uh, that's right. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, a sad Tintin watches the boat sail away uh, yeah. from his prison cell. Yeah. So we get, uh, and we get some tin, we get some Hergé in here that's not typical Hergé in this kind of scratchy shading behind Hergé, or behind Tintin in the cell. Uh, that's just, that's, that's early, that's early period Hergé kind of growing out of that scritchy, scratchy style. Well, at that the beginning he, of the page, it looks like there's some graffiti on the walls, a that's whole fine. bunch of business. That's fine. Like, graffiti I wondered if it was some inside jokes or something there, because it seems like that kind of thing. It could be, but it says Viva la Liberty and, uh, all right, fair enough. But uh, or Viva la Libertad in this boat. It uh, it's just more of the style, like this, the scritchy scratch. Like you just do not see that in later. Like he just pared that down out of out of his art. Yeah, they got rid of all that kind of shading and you know uh, uh, cross hatching. He just wanted none of that in in his work. So we will not we will not see that again in in Tintin. So Tintin uh, back where we've seen him before. Uh, he is about to be shot. He is yeah. a firing squad. But this sequence ready. is way more elaborate than we found in. Oh, absolutely! No, it's it's played on. So uh, the other and the other one, it was just basically it was part of the escape plan. Uh, the the prison the uh, firing squad squ- sequence in that. I mean, this is like a couple pages of some great great bits and really pull, pulls the yeah. uh, the story along as well. No, it's it's good stuff. Uh, again, I've, I've just been been to the firing squad before uh but, but not like this all right so tintin's about to be shot but stop don't shoot uh <laughs> the revolution has triumphed uh general tapioca has fled the tyrant is on the run our glorious general uh, alcazar is uh, now in command yay hooray you're free to go oh that's fantastic wait someone else runs in what's going on uh you know uh, have they caught general tapioca caught him you couldn't be more wrong 
Uh, General Alcazar's troops have surrendered. Alcazar himself has fled the country. Uh, tapioca is now in command. Yay, yay, tapioca, hooray. All right, we're going to shoot you now. But what I love in the sequence is the poses of the men as they're cheering. Yeah. There's so many great, uh, you know, you got the one guy in the background there who's got his arms raised and a couple <laughs> guys, one guy with his fist up. And then the other one, you've got the classic guy kind of swooping his arm across his chest, like kind of that hooray, you know, just like, yeah. just perfectly done. Like, there's such great poses there. I, and yeah. I like the apologetic uh, firing squad captain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. We're really going gonna to have to shoot you now. Yeah. So there we go yeah. and fire. And uh, But everyone's gun's been tampered with. Yes. Some sabotage has happened. Oh, boy. And uh, that just that just annoys the firing squad guy. He knows this is unprofessional. This isn't good business. Takes Tintin aside, gives him a drink. Yeah. And uh, I don't know how old Tintin is. That not kind old. Of... He doesn't often drink in the stories. No. So Tintin was about 16, maybe? Yeah. Something like that? So, not yeah. France. It's Belgium. It's French. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. European. Possibly. Yeah, right. You just used your judgment. Right. Uh, kids, Little kids work at wine bars back then. Right. <laughs> You're absolutely correct. So anyway, Tintin is like, oh, man, bit strong, bit strong. And uh, Tintin just gets drunk. Yes. Now. Aguardiente. Yeah, and so does the firing squad guy, which is not a good thing for a fire. If there's one time you should be sober, it's when you're executing somebody. I love the sequence. So, uh, you know, they're all having a good time. or getting back to the firing squad. Gonna, You know, Tintin doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's going to get shot. Everything's fine. Bang, bang, boom. Yeah. Here we go. And then what happens there now, Dave? What happens? Well, a drunken, a drunken uh, Tintin is... Uh, Ready to get shot. He's happy to get shot now. He's praising uh, Alcazar, the general who apparently has been defeated. Vive Alcazar, he says. And then, uh, then just as he's about to get shot, the rebels, uh, suddenly we hear the, the gunshots of rebels, the pan, 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 the familiar French sound of gunfire. Yeah. The rebels run in and save Tintin, who's still drunkenly proclaiming Alcazar. They are, you know, they're excited to find this young, brave, He's about uh, to be shot, and he's still praising partisan, General Alcazar. Partisan, yeah, who's, who is, even in front of the firing squad, was was praising General Alcazar. Hooray for General Alcazar. By the way, I, I want to go back just a little bit, because there was something that I oh, uh, sure. forgot to mention, which was, when Tintin's in prison, Snowy yeah. is not with him. They do not put Snowy in prison with him. Yeah. A sad Snowy is watching from the outside, yeah. waiting for his master. Yes. A little bit more realistic, a little sadder. It used to be they just <laughs> throw Snowy. If they're going to hang Tintin, they would hang Snowy as well. That's, that's, that's right. Uh, and so... In fact, through this whole thing, I'm wondering, where's Snowy at? And we do see him on the next page as Tintin's being hailed as a hero and carried through town. He says, yeah, but there's Tintin. Uh, Golly, or, look, there's Tintin. Oh. I thought he was dead. I'm taking this in stride. Does he say, the, I thought he was dead? No. Oh, okay. I'm just saying, golly, look, there's Tintin. But yeah. as far as Snowy knew, he's just hearing nothing but gunshots yeah. in there. Yeah. He thinks like Tintin's been shot ten times over. So uh, Tintin is being carried on the shoulders of the, of the, the fighters. And General Alcazar watches from the balcony and t- commands his, his uh, corporal to, or is it a colonel, to bring uh, Tintin to him. He wants to meet this young man, this brave young man. Now, this is the first appearance of General Alcazar in Tintin. We'll will see he him. be there? You will see him again. And what's interesting is that in uh, when Erge was a boy, he loved to go to movies. Mm-hmm. With, and uh, in his theater, there was a theater called the Alcazar. Oh, all right. Cool. So, and, and General Alcazar uh, appreciates him so much, he appoints him a colonel aide-de-camp. Yeah. To which uh, the uh, his the actual other... Colonel Aide de Camp <laughs> unaccountably takes uh, takes us the wrong way. Yeah, and just like hey, maybe uh, you should make him a corporal. We already have three thousand four hundred and eighty-seven colonels. You know, we got it's a lot of kind of deep in colonels. But yeah. yeah, yeah, we're gonna make him a colonel. He's a colonel. Go get an outfit. And to- and uh, Tintin, still drunk, is now a colonel. Okay, yes. so now we're gonna do a quick cut uh, that night. 
uh, to some sinister types wearing sombreros, wearing masks, wearing black cloaks. Yes. Swearing in this this colonel who's been demoted to corporal into the secret society who are sworn to defeat the tyrant, Alcazar. Yes. And, of course, he swears over a knife to do all he can to kill the tyrant. All right. Next morning. We have a lot of next mornings in this book. Uh, where's my new aide-de-camp? Uh, not here yet. Not here yet, General. And a very confused Tintin, who apparently woke up in his military outfit, yeah. is walking through town just like, what happened last night? Yeah. You know, well, I'm still looking for the fetish. I'll have to resign my commission. Uh, but uh, he sees uh, two other soldiers there. And, oh, my gosh, who is it? It's our goon brothers. Yes. Yeah. Them. So, yes. So then uh, General Alcazar comes out, says he has very important business to do with his aide-de-camp with Tintin. He cannot see those gentlemen right now. And, and then they start scheming. Oh, this is bad. Yes, yeah. we'll have to deal with them all over again. And then we see uh, Tintin with General Alcazar. Well, it's a delicate position. What are they talking about? What yeah. military? Oh, they're playing chess. <laughs> but there's any sequence of them scratching their head, looking at, you know, working over this thing. And then meanwhile, we see the guy with his uh, sombrero. Mask. And his mask. It seems not the best outfit to wear in the day. No, not the best <laughs> way to disguise yourself. Hidden amongst not very many trees. Throws a cartoon bomb. Throws a cartoon the bomb through the window. Uh, Tintin grabs it, throws it back out. It conks a guy in the head, and then both of them land into a fountain. So there is no actual explosion. No. Just by the by the way, the bomb coming in lands with a bing, and when it hits the guy in the head, also a bing. What sound effect do you have? <laughs> bing. They just didn't bother changing it because it was good enough. Alcazar says he'll never forget that Tintin saved his life. No. Yeah. He'll. They'll be faithful friends forever. And the and the uh, would be assassin is Caramba. Back to square one again. Yeah. All soaking wet. Yeah. That guy. Uh, and so uh, let's uh, let's see. Later on that night, uh, Tintin is walking uh, through the streets. He gets lassoed and uh, dragged along. Uh, they say uh, uh, off he goes to Dreamland. They knock him on the head, knock him unconscious. That's not the first time that's happened to yeah. Tintin. Yeah. Uh, he is put in a car and taken away. And uh, Tintin, uh, sorry, Snowy looks like he was. Uh, yeah, he was kicked in the face, and Snowy looks like he was knocked unconscious. Well, I don't like that at all. Poor Snowy. Yeah. Just wakes up by himself in the street. Oh. No one's even helped him all day because this is nighttime. No, it's... Yeah, poor, <laughs> poor guy. I actually do feel really bad for Snowy. So uh, so then we're cutting to an hour later. But he seems to be... He seems to know where he's gone because he goes running up into the mountains after him. Oh, true. And uh, meanwhile, Tintin is being questioned and threatened by the uh, couple of goons who want to find out where uh, where the, the actual fetish is. Right. And so, good for Snowy, by the way, as you say, going to find his master, following against the scent. Yeah. So we were told earlier that Tintin says a storm is coming. Yes, we've established that. So one does come. And so yeah, then we have thunder and and lightning is going on. It's raining out. Well, it looks like Tintin's about to be uh, killed. He's about to be killed when lightning strikes the chimney of the house. A fireball of of lightning. Yeah, a ball lightning happens. Yeah. Very rare that ball lightning occurs, but it has happened here. It has happened. They did not have an acorn on the windowsill. (laughs) Is that what they say to stop ball lightning? Yeah. Okay. It's an old superstition. And it uh, tears half of the uh, one thug who's going to kill Tintin's clothes off. Uh, the other thug gets uh, just kind of his pants blown off, it appears. Well, he, loses, he loses both sleeves as well. Right, both. Oh, right. Oh, no, but the, no, they're no, back uh, on again when he's outside. But he does lose. If you look at the fourth picture on the top row, he's missing his sleeves on his, on his right. green suit. 
in the next picture, his, his pant legs are torn, but and his it's, sleeves are back on again. Yeah, it seems like Tintin has just been incinerated. It's just a smoldering stool with all the ropes that were holding uh, Tintin shattered. But Oh, it uh, was the, a coloring mistake, because then if you look down the next panels, he's running with a, his gun and his oops. sleeves are white again. Yeah, you're right. So yeah, maybe a, maybe that is a thing we we're talking about earlier about uh, the importance of color yeah. and uh, keen eye and maybe keeping an Erge being the one. And, anyway, be doing here's it. how Tintin escaped. <laughs> uh, ball lightning blew him out a window. It looks like yeah, and not a hundred percent sure how Tintin escaped from that one. And has the usual effect of removing our clothes. Yeah, almost as anything ball lightning is wont to do. It, it does. Although to be fair, uh, one time in the city where I live, Langley, there was a man who was uh, putting some uh, white gas into his uh, camp stove. And he was doing it in his garage with the door closed. Yes. Now, white gas is very flammable. And so the fumes, as he was doing this, filled his, his carport. Then his furnace switched on, ignited the white gas, and blew him out of his carport through the door. And when he landed outside, he was naked. Oh, okay. So he actually caught on fire and his clothes burned off as he was thrown out of, the, out of his carport. And he landed out in his carport... Uh, without any clothes on. We had a uh, so it can happen. We had a thing in Vancouver here. This does not involve nudity, but there was a pizza parlor called Dynamite Pizza, yeah. which will be ironic shortly. <laughs> uh, and someone decided to clean the uh, pizza oven using gasoline, which you do, uh, and it uh, blew him out of the uh, out of the restaurant yes. and across the street, and he was uh, survived. Yeah, he was fine. Uh, so but- it is. Pa- it's possible for an explosion to throw you out of a out of yeah. a place. It's better. If- we don't know. We, it looks like he went out the window, <laughs> so not out the door or something. Right. But uh, yeah, he's laying outside. They he, go. Uh, they follow suit. They're shooting their guns uh, very smartly, not throwing knives at him. <laughs> uh, he's uh, he's but still missing. Yeah, he's they're still missing because they're terrible. Uh, they think he's run around the corner. Incorrect. Uh, brings him down with two rocks. Yes. Uh, uh, thrown from a high place, and then uses uh, power cords to tie them up. Listen, in case of electrical storm. Don't grab the power cords uh, and tie a person up. That's probably not the safest thing. Even if the power is out, that's still not 100% a good thing to do. Uh, see a little bit of Snowy uh, still chasing yeah, and after they, his and master? They meet up. They meet up as, as they're walking down the road. Old friends. Back to as he's marching these guys good back. Good old Snowy. There you are. Hooray. And uh, brings the police these thugs. Uh, good morning. I brought you some customers. <laughs> a little bit of a Weisenheimer. Good for him. Uh, back to uh, Alcazar. Uh, who's a little upset that Tintin is running late. Uh, but uh, as before, that uh, the would-be assassin is setting up uh, dynamite right outside of Alcazar's window. Uh, but uh, Alcazar tosses his cigar outside. What a what a caper. You'd think that someone who's just had a revolution, has just taken over the, the established government of a country, yeah. would have some work to do. You know, solidifying his position as the new leader of this. Oh, this is what you think. I was thinking maybe someone who's just had a bomb thrown in that window yesterday yeah. would shut the window or at least have a guard at that window, which is now, it's basically a drive-through window for assassins yes. to just take a shot. So this- First of all, they got over some kind of fence. They can go right up to his window. Uh, with your with your big thing that says dynamite on it, yeah. uh, getting ready to set it off. Yes, wearing a black cloak a mask. mask and a big sombrero yeah the corp the co- former former colonel aide-de-camp returns with a giant can of dynamite yeah you know and why does it say dynamite it should say gunpowder it should but it doesn't. because dynamite is not packed 
Yeah, it's, like in a bundle inside a inside a drum. It says dynamite, but it just says dynamite. That's right. He might as well just have a button saying, "I'm an assassin. Want to want to join the Assassins Guild? Ask me how." <laughs> anyway, he gets caught on fire because of uh, the cigar thrown onto his sombrero, which is incredibly uh, flammable. Does the old oh something's burning, and he ends up in the same fountain again. <laughs> That's good stuff. You just something you don't enjoy it. It's fun. It's fun. It's fine. It's fine. It's good. No, it's fine. All right, so uh, we're back to now Tintin in his tattered clothing, uh, playing uh, chess with the general. General not seeming to mind yeah. his uh, colonel showing up in in rags, not fixing him up or anything. But it's uh, it's time for a game of chess, but, and, and Tintin makes the mistake of winning. I know, and it does further the it does further the the story in a in a fun way, and it's not really further than the story. I mean, this basically this is like the longest longure, the sort of long uh, wait between uh, the. Incident. I mean, really, what's happening in the story? You could describe the plot very quickly. The rest of it is so much filler. There's so much custard in this yeah. pie, but it's delicious custard, so I don't mind. But there is a lot of it. I mean, the whole revolutionary part of it is is this filler. Yeah, you could just say it's Tintin, a whole lot of business. Yeah, there's a whole lot of business. Like in this. this is the kind of plot almost that the Marx Brothers would get involved in. You yeah. Know? Yeah. All right. So the uh, so so uh, he gets mad that Tintin w- w- wins. Looks like he shoots him in the face five times. Well, he is firing up in the air. So sure. So he, but he fires his gun off. Then he's laughing hilariously. Tintin is probably deaf and also amazed at what's going on. Snowy is stunned underneath the chair. Yeah. And says, "Oh, by the way, I was just joking around. This is yeah. some blanks. It's just blanks. I often do that." In fact, one time I did that to an aide de camp that I that I used to have, and uh, he got jaundice. He was he got jaundice. Yeah, yeah. Now here's my problem, and he finds it hilarious. Now he got jaundice. Now the guy who fell into the fountain, yeah, goes back to light the dynamite on fire. Yeah. Now he has just heard five gunshots. Yeah. Inside the window. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't care. No. I'm, I got I got I got dynamite to light. He's got a one track mind. With what? You just fell into a fountain. Where did you get fresh matches in which to light this thing now? Well, we did establish that he didn't have matches. So he must have gone somewhere because that was why he uh, was waiting to find matches. That's why he was sort of patting himself and the cigar went into his sombrero. Okay. But yeah, he's a... He's a terrible assassin. (laughs) He runs out the door. Uh, There's a big explosion. He gets clonked on the head from a statue. And then we see him getting his head bandaged and the the kind of ringleader of this gang of, of... of uh, anarchists is telling him didn't you know that you just can't put dynamite against a wall you have to bury it in order to get an explosion which is true it's a good thing to learn if you're going to become an anarchist <laughs> sure if there's one thing we can yeah that's right and then the payoff to the whole sequence is oh guy fox will you ever learn the payoff to the whole sequence is that uh the the colonel cannot come in that day because he has got jaundice from shock from the explosion crazy uh, oh, payoff okay. Pay off, everybody. There are. All right. So now Tintin, it looks like he's in charge. He's uh, there. He's the aide de camp. So he's behind the desk yes. and uh, uh, gets to meet someone. Uh, R. W. Trickler. There you are, which representative inter- General American Oil. In the French version, his name is R. W. Chicklet. Do you think if Chicklet, the gum, was but definitely like a reference to America? Well, this sounds like know? two things. One, you know, you get a trickle of oil. It's a, something that runs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also it sounds like a tricker. He's a trick- sort. Yeah, yeah, he's a trickster. Yeah. So uh, good morning. He's able to sit down and uh, gets a brief uh, update uh, that the uh, that those uh, goons, they've escaped. Again, ah, uh, terrible. Yeah. Who, who, what kind of the prison is that? One that I'm normally in? Uh, oh, well, okay. And then back to talking to Trickler. I like how Trickler's kind of like, Frowning and looking off in the other, in, a, in a different direction with his eyes, nah. like kind of like, oh, 
Gotta wait for a phone call now. Yeah, Trickler is not a million miles away from a Muppet. Or Groucho Marx. Yeah, also kind of groucho You're absolutely right. That's right. So they've uh, they've just discovered oil deposits in the uh, Grand Chapo region. Uh, it lies partly in his, in the, the country of uh, Alcazar and in the neighboring uh, territory, the Republic of uh, Nuevo Rico. Now, is Nuevo that, Rico. Is that real or is that a made-up? No, they're both made-up. This is basically, they're both standing in for, for Bolivia and Paraguay. Okay. But uh, what's kind of interesting here... You tell here, me the satire here because I don't quite get it. So go go for it. Well, the satire here. So the satire, we kind of talked about it before the program started, but... The satire here is uh, there was a region between Bolivia and Paraguay, a long time uh, contested area. There were border skirmishes for a long time. And so in this Gran Chaco area, oil was discovered. And so uh, various oil interests moved into the area and started playing the two sides off of each other, Bolivia and Paraguay. You know, whoever can get control of this area can have, you know, if they let the oil companies go in there to get the oil out, they will get a cut of the proceeds of this. So this giant war developed. Uh, like I say, over 100,000 people were killed in this three-year battle until they finally signed a treaty. Uh, but in the meantime, yes, it was a terrible thing. So while it was, so, you know, Hergé is commenting on this by having the oil companies coming in and playing both sides off of each other, trying to gain access to these oil fields. And, uh, Grand, so instead of being Grand Chaco, it becomes Grand Chapo, which is, of course, if you're French, Grand Chapeau, big hat. Right. And then Nuevo Rico, Nouveau Riche. So they're little uh, jokes on uh, place names that uh, Hergé was having a little bit of fun with the puns in French. And so the, he's trying to convince uh, Tintin, you know, uh, hey, why don't you have a war with that? Uh, help us all out. And say, yeah. Oh, what? Tintin's not on board with this at all. Of course not. And, and he's going to get some money out of it. In fact, he'll give him $100,000 in cash if you persuade Alcazar to uh, take the campaign. Is this a deal? And uh, he has handed his hat and yes. told that's the as door. Usual, as usual, Tintin will have nothing to do with money. Tintin does not like when you offer him money. No. Like, you offer Tintin a, a couple of bucks, he will punch you in the face. <laughs> True enough. Absolutely. Do not. He will not take change. Right. He will not accept it. He does not want your money. Uh, but, you know, uh, who will take money is uh, goons. Yes. Yeah. Uh, speaking of goons, still practicing the old throwing the knife. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe... Anything else. Yes. Maybe just have a trained dog. Maybe any other way of killing a person. Yeah, so they have see, their prison uniform nailed up or pinned up against the door. Yeah. And he's throwing the knife against it. He seems it. pretty good at it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's time to throw it at Tintin in real life and he misses you. So, <laughs> so it's just terrible. But let's not also ignore the fact that the uh, oil chicklet or yeah. trick, trickler has hired someone to who then takes the money and then hires kind of subcontracts uh, an assassin to also kill... Tintin. So we have two people working against Tintin. One is our friend, our friend who uh, cannot hit the broadside of a barn door with a knife. Yeah. And the other is a guy with a gun. So what's amusing is who may is, be competent. Who may be competent. Uh, Tintin missed the knife. Misses Tintin as per usual. Goes into a tree. Yeah. The other the knife thrower runs away. The knife cuts a bunch of bananas that are <laughs> hanging in the tree. And for some reason, Hergé has drawn the bananas upside down. Because bananas actually hang in the other direction when they're in the bunches oh, hanging in trees. Oh, that's a good point. So he's drawn them upside down. I guess a little bit of lack of research there. He's probably seen bunches of bananas, but never seen them hanging in a tree. They land on the would-be assassin's they head. They land on the would-be assassin's Fires his gun. Yeah. In silence, no sound effect. Uh, and uh, the bullet whizzes by Tintin and uh, hits the other assassin in the buttocks. Yes. And then Tintin catches the, the, the uh, gun-firing assassin who then begs for his his life. And so then Tintin, meanwhile, 
Meanwhile, other life fielding. I wish we knew her in the name. I can't remember. Ramon comes back. His name's Ramon. Ramon and Alonso. Let's sure, just say sure. that. Okay. That's their names. I'm going to call him Knifey and the other guy. Ramon and Alonso. Okay. Uh, Ramon returns. He's been shot. He's holding his head for some reason. Yeah. Which well, isn't a good clue to his friend. So then his friend seats him down, and for some reason, there is a needle. There's a, you know, like a one of those, uh, what are they called? The needle pincushion. Pincushion. Sitting on a chair. Right. Because he was doing some sewing. Why was he sewing? He was doing some sewing. Of what? I don't know. He blew his, uh, his outfit apart before. Maybe he's got to That's true. He's got to put outfit. it back together. He is wearing the same pants. So that's possible. He's sewing his sleeves back on. I no, know. he's darning socks. Well, this sounds... He's this, darning socks. There's a sock like, on the uh, that's chair. That's true. It sounds like a variation on an old joke, which is like, you know, you're shot, you're shot in the buttocks. You can't tell someone that. So just hold your head. Yeah. Yeah. When you come in. So meanwhile, uh, unless he was shot all the way through the, and the bullet has made its way to his brain, by this point. So meanwhile, yeah, the uh, the first assassin, the uh, gun assassin, is begging for begging for his life. Basically, tells tells him the whole plot against him through hired by Rodriguez through Trickler or slash Chicklet, and so now Tintin lets him go. Mm-hmm. He's a forgiving guy. He's a Boy Scout. He's got a you know, he lets him go, and so then you really shouldn't let an assassin go. It's too late. He did it. <laughs> I disagree with this. With this completely. At least take his gun. Don't let him... Yeah, well. So now we have another interesting sequence here where the, the oil company buys the general's, uh, his cooperation. Because we know that Alcazar isn't the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. And then he leaves. He gives. He puts a little bug in his ear about uh, Tintin not being trustworthy. And then we have this kind of fun sequence where in the black and white version, it was Basil Mazarov. In this version, it's Basil Basarov. Yeah. Um, from Viking Arms Company Limited. Now, this is based on... Ba- Corrupt Arms GmbH. Oh, it says Corrupt? Oh, in the original, it was Viking... In the French, it was Viking Arms, which yeah. was based on Viking Arms, Vickers Armstrong, which was an actual oh, okay. uh, munitions company. This is Corrupt, uh, spelled with a K, not a C. Yes, like like Krupp, yeah. the uh, German company. But also sounds like K- uh, Corrupt. K-R-U-P-P. Yeah. So a joke on that. Vickers being British, maybe they didn't want to use Vickers Armstrong, so they used the German one. That was probably more acceptable for the English translators. In the French, it was Viking Arms. And now there actually was a famous, a famously corrupt and almost a very terrible person named Basil Zaharoff. He was actually a Greek whose family fled to, to uh, the Soviet, or not Soviet, to Russia during, because they were from uh, Turkey. And in Turkey, they were having like kind of a pogrom against the Greeks. So the Greeks fled to Russia. So they changed the name to Zaharov while they were in Russia. And he was uh, a scoundrel in every which way. He became very wealthy uh, through arms dealing. And he sold to whoever wanted arms. In World War I, he provided everyone who was fighting with, with, with guns. Even though while he was selling munitions to the Germans, he was also selling munitions to the to the Allies and working in the Allied interest, paying off uh, he spent about 50 million pounds uh, in an effort to help the Allies, but he was also yeah. still selling to the to the to the uh, German uh, side of things, and uh, he would um, he would sabotage people's uh, like there was a Spanish inventor who invented the very first working submarine, and Zaharoff uh, sabotaged it in every which way to prevent like anyone from buying his version of it, and so that you know so then. Zaharoff could buy his uh, his stuff at a cheap at a cheap profit, like a cheap cheaply to buy his copyright his patents, and yeah, he was just a terrible guy, terrible guy, but a multimillionaire from his activities. So we see in here this sort of parody of what he did, uh, selling, and he did sell yeah. guns. Zaharoff did sell guns to Paraguay and Bolivia during yeah. this war. This clearly to me, this is like reading Animal Farm and just going, I gotta read up on some history to understand what this is parodying. Okay. <laughs> 
But yeah, but that, it's still. If, I mean, I read it as a kid, and I could understand nope. the 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 moral of it. He's playing all the sides. Yeah, he's playing right. off both sides, and because he just he sells, uh, you know, he sells twelve, um, I think six dozen of his uh of his seventy five TRG. That's what it is in French with with sixty thousand rounds of ammunition to this San Theodoran government, and now he gets into his plane. Yep, and they tells the secretary that he lands in uh in um. Uh, Nuevo Rico, in which the uh, name of the capital city of Nuevo Rico is Saint-Facion. In French, Saint-Facion is without manners. So just oh, another little good. pun there for the fun of it. I don't know why Los Dopicos is obviously just a bit of fun uh, on Tropicos becomes Dopicos. But uh, in the case of Nuevo Rico, it's got a lot of fun in the names. So uh, he lands there, talks to their government. He sells them six dozen of the 75 TRG and 60,000 rounds of ammunition on the exact same payment plan. And so, and then when he lands, he uh, also provides. Uh, he turns out he's in league with with Trickler slash Chicklet yeah. in trying to get this war on the go. Because if he can get the war on the go, then he can he can sell his guns and ammunition to both sides. Trickler slash Chicklet can get his oil fields, and so and to help this along, he gives uh, him some information about or a fake uh, letter. From Tintin to the Nuevo Rican That's government. That's going to hurt Tintin. Yeah. Then we do a quick cut to our uh, our goon brothers uh, again there. They're not brothers, but I like calling them that. And uh, they got a time bomb there. This isn't the goon brothers. This oh. is the uh, this is the anarchists. This is oh, the, sorry League, about of, this. the, the League of the anarchists. anarchists. My, my yeah. apologies. Yeah. With the masks, it's confusing. Uh, they're setting up that uh, they got a time bomb set to explode exactly 11 o'clock tomorrow morning. You yeah. better succeed this time. I'll succeed, Chief. Liberty or death. Yes. All right. Back to Trickler. Uh, talking to Alcazar and shows him the Tintin letter, which, oh, Alcazar loses his mind over this thing. Yeah. Because uh, it shows uh, Tintin to be a spy, a traitor, a rat. He's going to pay clearly for this. Uh, and uh, so uh, then uh, we're, we're seeing the anarchist with his time bomb. He's looking up at the clock. Oh, he's got plenty of time. Yeah. Lots of time. It's only 9.30. Yeah, everything's great. Okay, back to Tintin. Uh, so Tintin is uh, putting on his military uniform, answers the door. It's uh, Colonel uh, Juanitos. And uh, unfortunately, he says, uh, come to arrest you. Take you away. <laughs> Boy, howdy. And then we, we get a little bit of other information saying, there's been power cut off this morning, so all the municipal clocks have stopped. Well, okay. Wonder who that's going to affect. Wait a minute, Mr. Time Bomb! Yeah. And then we set up and see that it's actually 11 o'clock, and uh, that guy does not survive this explosion. No. That is not a comedy explosion. No, that is a... Well, that's it, the end of you. It's comedy in the sense that you can see his legs sticking out the bottom of the explosion. And Can't his hat believe. going up in the air. But if we saw a second later, it would be a gruesome image. Yeah. And whoever has to clean the streets that day is in for a rough time. But the irony is in between him seeing that it's 11 o'clock and his bomb is about to... Uh, what's it? Not ignite. Just explode. Explode. Yeah, bomb. go. And detonate. Then, detonate, that's the word. And then between him seeing that it's going to detonate and the actual explosion... You see that uh, General Alcazar has taken away, because Tintin's under arrest, he wants to give back to his original corporal aide-de-camp, or colonel aide-de-camp, his position. Unfortunately, his colonel aide-de-camp has now become particles, and that's the end of him. Yep. Oh, irony. Well, now, and now we're back to prison, but this time, maybe because uh, Tintin's risen in the ranks a bit, he gets to have Snowy in prison with him. <laughs> Snowy's not waiting out to outside anymore, and yeah. I like it. Snowy's grumpy in prison, but I think he likes being with Tintin. Yeah. Uh, Tintin's so worried, uh, it's not going to be that easy to escape. Not like back in the days where you could just sneeze your way out of these prisons. Uh, but an arrow flies in through the window with a string attached and a note 
saying, pull up the string. A rope's attached to it. The rope is, uh, is, uh, uh tie, tie the rope firmly to the bars. And when you're ready, uh, wave your handkerchief. So there we go. We've got an escape plan. Tintin does this. A tractor, uh, pulls the, uh, bars out. And, uh, Tintin is, uh, is rescued. Yeah, Tintin jumps into a blanket. It's oh, a good, while holding Snowy. It's a good escape plan, actually. It's No, it's valid. Better than the Thompsons' dumb escape plans in The Cigars of the Pharaoh. I really expect to see more Thompsons in this. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like... You were disappointed, I guess. I was disappointed. I want to see more Thompsons as things uh, progress. <laughs> so, okay, Tintin's uh, on the run. Uh, you know, they're getting over the wall. They're shooting at the guards. Uh, bad luck being a guard there. In fact, uh, Alcazar has woken up with this information. Tintin has escaped and says he's got to be recaptured or he'll shoot every guard at the prison. <laughs> There's a massacre happening with this guy. This guy's a real jerk. And you say he's going to be a character in future stories? Mm-hmm. I don't know about this. This guy just seems like a real bit of business. Anyway, uh, Tintin escapes. Driving down the street. Chased by some soldiers. Uh, they're shooting. Uh, they, a, a very nice, again, I always love seeing Hergé draw a train. He draws a really nice train. Nice train, but the cars are nice too, and, and the sequence of the cars chasing each other, it's well done, because you get a sense of the chase, um, even though you don't see the cars, like, in the same image together, uh, you get a sense of that they're close, like, I don't know, it's just, it's really well done, like, you have, like, the shot of the, all the, all the guards in the car. Yeah. It's nighttime, so you know they're driving off. Then it's day, so the next morning. At dawn or whatever. Right. And then... Is Tintin playing the radio? There's musical notes coming out of the car. I think he's whistling. Wow. He's really taking this calmly. Well, yeah, because he's escaped, right? But then then we see them, a similar... So his car, I don't know how you describe it, sort of middle distance in the frame. Yeah. Then you see the guard's car. It's also kind of middle distance, but a little closer to us. So we get the sense of them coming nearer to us, right? So nearer to Tintin. They say, there he is. Then we get a full shot, like a full frame of them firing at him with rifles or firing at them with a machine gun, and then a close-up of Tintin, so even closer of Tintin. So everything's getting closer to Tintin. The bullet goes through his window, narrowly missing poor Snowy. Then Tintin looks in his rearview mirror and says, oh, I'm being pursued. So then a quick shot of him racing along. Then he sees the train. Then we get a comment from the uh, guys in the car saying, this would be insane. You know, he's he's done for. Yeah. We're going to catch him right away. Uh, there's no way he can, he'll have to stop for the train. Tintin cannot stop for the train. He's got to get away from these guys. So then we get this great shot of... <laughs> Of uh, the guards are just amazed, like the the reaction of of him passing by. Erge doesn't cheat us. He does show the car being narrowly missed by the train. Yeah. And then the other guys having to stop for the train and Tintin carrying on. And it's it is a beautiful train. It's a beautiful car. Yeah. It all looks really nice. Now this next sequence I had a little bit of an issue with because we've been through this before. We've been through the car going up a hill. We've been through it falling off. Oh, the oh, yeah. person's dead. Whenever you see a car chase in a movie, you're like. Oh, yawn, another car chase in a movie. No, no, but this is the exact same beats. Like, it's going it's going up a hill. Uh, it's gone over the hill. Oh, there's a flaming wreck. Oh, he must be dead. Yeah. Oh, no, he's not dead. Yeah. Because he's, he just escaped from the car. Again, it was just a couple of books back that we've done this exact same series of beats. You know? It's and not exactly the same, but okay. It's if, pretty similar. If you think it's exactly the same, it's fine. <laughs> All right, guys. Look at look. I forget which one this happened in. Was it Tintin in America that they did this? No, it was. You're thinking of uh, uh, Cigars of the Pharaoh. Yeah. When they're chasing the the fakir and uh, he doesn't realize that Rastopopoulos is there, but they pretend to crash the car and go hide up in the hills. Right. And that in in that instance, uh, Tintin isn't fooled and starts going walking or they think he isn't fooled. He starts walking back to his car. 
Rastopoulos fires at him, misses him, right. gives Tintin the clue that they're there, and he starts to pursue them. But the gag is, uh, f- uh, the car has crashed, yeah. you're going to think I'm dead, I'm not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one, Tintin doesn't fall for it. And yeah. this one, these guys do fall they for do it. They do fall for it. Because they're not as smart as Tintin, That's and right. Tintin ends up with their car. Well, it's, Tintin, nice, it's nice. Tintin to... steals it. He re- remembers this happened to him, so he steals the idea and does the same oh, thing. Only okay. it works. You could, you can. All right, that's just mm, that's possible. That's possible. Okay. They Tintin, are, Tintin, they are connected. No, all right, connected. all right. I'm going to give you that one. Uh, Tintin is worried because there is a barrier. Uh, he's like, oh, if that's a strong barrier, I'm okay, dead. Okay, so yeah, let's just say he does succeed in stealing the guard's car and he's racing away from them. Yeah. So yeah, he sees a barrier. Uh, drives through the barrier, takes the risk, makes it. He's fine, uh, driving along, and uh, they're firing at him with machine guns. Yeah, then he's then he's heading towards two uh, to a well defended uh, like two places where they've built up with sandbags and machine guns to uh, you know. So he doesn't really have much chance. Yeah, they shoot out the tires. Tintin goes flying. So does Snowy. Snowy really goes flying. Fantastic crash. Yeah, really nice crash. Uh, Tintin's lying at the side of the road. The uh, the guards go and uh, catch him. And uh, and then uh, back uh, back in uh, San uh, Fascion, what would you say that is? San Fascion. San Fascion. Uh, General, General, this uh, dispatch has come by telephone. An armored car. Uh, this time it's war. Well, that's what they want. That's what they're going to get. And uh, so now uh, they're going to war. Death to Alcazar. Yes. People are flipping out. This country is going to war. To war. Yes. Time for the Marx Brothers. Sure. It is very Marx Brothers in yeah, some Yeah, it does feel that with all the costumes and everything. Right. So, okay. Well, I'll, I'll turn this over to you for a bit because I'm getting a little confused here now. Keep going. <laughs> You're getting confused. So, a little bit. Well, this is kind of the situation that we have that uh, we had in the uh, Blue Lotus where a very minor, you know, Tintin by himself, he is in a San Theodoran car. He crashes through the border. He is quickly captured. Yeah. But it becomes through a series of of promotional stunts it becomes uh, an attack a major skirmish on the border a major attack by sent by the san theodorans on nuevo rico uh the newspapers are full of this giant attack people are reading it's war now they're all up in arms they have yeah. you know posters of the of the devil uh you know death to alcazar sign saying you know los dopicos are bust I don't know what it says in the uh, English version. I'm just reading it in French here. It doesn't say bust. Uh, Las Dopicos, here we come. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Death to Alcazar again. And then, uh, meanwhile, Alcazar is, uh, you know, is happy. You know, he's finally got, you know, unintentionally, Tintin has created the incident that launches the war. He did not mean to do this, but he has started the incident. So the soldiers start... Ramon and Alfonso, who, uh, or Alonso, who didn't, you know, reckon, you know, who were part of the military are now been, you know, are now on the march and thinking, well, we got to get out of here as soon as we can. So then, so we know that's what's happening with them. We cut back to Tintin being put into a truck. Uh, the soldiers are very tired. One of them has fallen asleep. Right. Uh, luckily, uh, Tintin has Snowy chewing on his Snowy ropes. Snowy has Chewy. Chewie has snowy. Chewie has snowy. You're yeah. confusing this with Star Wars right, right now. That's right. And uh, Tintin is free. Actually, says free out loud uh, with the guards there. One seems to be awake. Doesn't seem the kind of thing to well, say to him. This is guard. before the invention of thought bubbles. So All right. We can assume that it's an aside, yeah. not spoken out loud to the guard. Tintin uh, jumps out of the uh, uh, truck, so does Snowy, yeah, landing on his head. Both of them land badly. What a fall. Yeah, lands right Tintin lands on his back. And yeah. it's a terrible fall, and yeah, and Snowy equally bad on his head. And then, but and then Snowy, while recovering from this head trauma, yeah. uh, gets shot in the tail. Poor Snowy's tail. 
Every and they issue. Both jump into uh looks like a raging river. Yep. Uh they're shot at. Uh the Tintin grabs a rock, survives, uh, uh barely grabs yeah. Snowy in time. So yeah, they come to some falls. Grabs his poor shot tail. Poor guy. So much pain for Snowy. So here was here's what I was talking about earlier. So what we have here is is a much earlier style of of Hergé's art. So if you remember back to Tintin in the Congo, there's also a sequence by the falls where he's thrown into the falls by the by the by the gangster. Yeah. Uh, you know, to just drift down and die, and it's a very similar drawing of of uh, the falls. You know, lots of p- pen work, as if we're looking at kind of an old fashioned drawing yeah. with a lot of you know. And this is something that Tint- that Hergé would not have done in a, in a, his later style. So this kind of predates his real adherence to the clear line. Yeah. Though I do like the water going over the water. Oh yeah, it looks great. Yeah. It's just not Hergé style. Yeah. It's not his style. And Tintin escapes by uh, grabbing a giant, a big long log. Yeah, that happens walk. to be coming down. It's a good action sequence. Oh, it yeah. really is a really good action sequence. Yeah. And uh, you really do feel for Snowy, man. He's going through a lot of pain. Uh, but, yep, they get away. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, reading uh, Caramba, listen to this, Ramon. Uh, drama at sea. Uh, the liner uh, Ville de Lyon uh, caught fire last night in the mid-ocean. Agency reports uh, state that passengers and crew are safe, but all cargo and baggage has been destroyed. The fetish! The fetish burnt. Unless, says Ramon, unless uh, this Tintin is lying uh, when he tell us this fetish is in his trunk. Yeah. <laughs> so, back to Tintin, walking up a hill with Snowy, a nice grassy hill, uh, where they uh, where they get shelter. Yes. Yeah. It's uh, Don uh, Don Jose uh, Tru, uh, Trujilla uh, owns the Hacienda. It's putting him up, and uh, the two of them talk over drinks. Alcoholic drinks? I'm going to say probably, because I think now Tintin's a heavy drinker. That's what I think. This uh, Tintin, and this one is a bit of a booze hound. Well, if he is, he doesn't drink any of his drink, because uh, it's the same level in, in all the pict- on all the images. So Unless he keeps getting refills. Uh-huh. The jug does not go down. But anyway, okay. Okay, I'll throw it over to you now. <laughs> uh, so so what uh, Tintin learns here at uh, at this farm, at this hacienda? Yes. That si. Si. Is that uh, in this area, he, well, Tintin asks, are there, is this the area where the Arambayas live? And uh, this man, what is his name again? Don? Oh, I, the last name is hard. Don, Don Jose, Jose uh, Trujillo. Trujillo, yes. All right. Trujillo. Uh, is, uh, he says, yes. He says, uh, see, the problem is I'm trying to have to translate this from the French, which I can read, but I have a hard time paraphrasing these big uh, things. So I'm just going to paraphrase very quickly. He says, yes, the Arambayas are a ferocious Indian tribe uh, in this area. And uh, the last time that attempt to reach them, there's this explorer named Ridgewell, uh, he has not been seen since he went. That was 10 years ago. And uh, so Tintin's like, ah, oh, interesting. And he says, do you think someone would be willing to guide me there? And Trujillo's reaction is, huh? Which makes sense. So uh, I feel the same way. He gets a guide and gets says, guide, will yeah. you act as my guide? Oh, yeah, sure. I want to go to uh, visit the uh, Arambayas. And then, no way! <laughs> Pulls a real Don Knotts on that one. No sorry, Bob. But uh, Tintin has so much money. That this poor man yes. cannot refuse. Yeah, so this guy's, his name, in the original version, his name was Carajo. Carajo. That's what I got. Yeah. No, Carajo. you have Carajo. Oh, what's the difference? They changed it to Carajo because in Spanish, Carajo is uh, slang for penis. So uh, they changed it from the original, but they changed it, to, like, it was, that's how it ran in Le Petit Vantiem. Okay. But when it was put into book form, 
in black and white book form by Casterman, they they changed it at that point. Right, honest mistake. Someone pointed out to yeah. Hergé, yeah, that that was what it meant. So it happened. He, so uh, going down the river for several days, yeah, several several days. Yes. Uh, and then they uh, set a tent, and the next morning, uh, Carago, he's gone. Caraco, he leaves. Yes, yeah. he does not want. We'll to... always have Caraco on the cover of this uh, story. Yes, you know, despite the fact that he is not. But I mean, he so was he's in it for a page. He was pretty honest. He yeah. didn't. He had him made him buy the boat, and he didn't. So he didn't take it. He left it for him. Yeah. I mean, that was pretty helpful. Unfortunately, he left Tintin by himself to row down a river, and so this shortly after that, uh, he hits some rapids, loses control of the boat, crashes it, and is uh, now without a boat or any clothes, arms, anything, just wandering through the jungle. Yeah. Hostile country all by himself. Oh, very hostile, because suddenly a uh, poison dart is shot at him. And oh, hits he a thinks tree. it's a poison dart. Yeah, could be. And then. He hides behind a tree. Another poison dart comes he's from. He's on the run. He's on the run, and then it turns out he has been. Oh, there was a snake. Snake's about to eat uh, Snowy. It looks like, uh, but the uh, dart kills the snake. Yes. And then out from the bushes comes Santa Claus. But here's the thing: the snake was in a tree, but it was not in the original tree that Tintin was hiding behind. So when the person shoots at him, there's no reason to be shooting at him other than just shooting at him. Mm. And for some reason, this person is magical because not only can he shoot the front of the tree, he can also run completely silently through jungle undergrowth to behind Tintin and fire at him from the back of the into the back of the tree. So then Tintin runs away, hides behind a tree. Yeah. This guy shoots from where Tintin is hiding, then does a full another 180 degree run around, and then shoots uh, into the tree and kills the snake. Wow, okay. It doesn't not make much sense. It does not make much sense. Logistically, but, but... Do you know what does make sense? Seeing another big, full, white beard. Yes. And long if hair. You, if you it's... did a drinking game with this game, yeah. and every time you see a full, white beard, you take a drink, you'd be very drunk by this point in the story. Uh, ten years worth of beard. And he meets a fella. His name is Ridgerwell. The Explorer, says Tintin, but everyone thinks you're dead. You <laughs> faked his death. I like in, in this version, he says, too bad. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, he says, too bad. Yeah. He says, uh, or rather... That's a good thing, because I decided never to return to civilization. I'm happy here among the Arambayas whose uh, life I share, and whose weapons you've adopted. What was the meaning of that little game of darts? He says, smiling. Yeah. (laughs) But probably a little nervously. Yeah. Yeah. And saying, well, listen, buddy, it's this one, which always seems like a a thing that's supposed to sound soothing in a story, but never does. Hey, if I I wanted to kill you, you'd already be dead. Yeah, that's right. Let me show you. (laughs) There, I could have killed you. Yeah. Maybe that's not the best way to make a friend, but boy... A lot of action movies have taken that. Yeah, they have for sure. And he shoots. So he shoots the dart through a flower, and of course through Snowy's tail. Oh my gosh, Snowy! He had his tail shot recently, and then was grabbed immediately afterwards. And now, oh poor Snowy! That's too much Snowy abuse, frankly, for me. <laughs> so, and Snowy wasn't even a jerk in this one. Snowy was nothing but loyal and uh, good in this. Uh, yeah. But he's oh, don't worry, the dart wasn't poison. No, it just went right through his tail. <laughs> this huge dart. Yeah. Just ah. Uh, and was the flower poisonous? Right. That it pierced. Uh, so, yeah, they take care of Snowy. Then they start walking through the jungle. And suddenly they are surrounded by, in your version, the Rumbabas. Is that what it is? Uh, Rumbabas, yes. In, uh, sworn enemies of the Arambayas. Yeah. In the uh, French version, in original original version, they were called Bibaros, okay. uh, which is close to the, or Bibaros, which is close to the the Javaros, which is an actual uh, tribe in that area of South America, okay. who were, he- you know, were headhunters. And so that, a lot of that stuff, uh, Tintin or Erge took from, from those, that tr- actual tribe. But and, uh, we're, you know, Tintin, of course, in this one is a two fisted fella mm-hmm. and uh, takes a couple of them out, but uh, gets overpowered. 
in the end because there's just too many and is told that uh, they're going to cut off their heads and uh, shrink them to the size of an apple, which yeah. horrifying shows them three heads, yeah, three heads on sticks. Yeah. And now the interesting thing here now in the, uh, oops, sorry about, sorry, microphone in the French version. Uh, I'm just trying to turn between two different books here in the French version. We have 97 different copies of this book in front of us yeah. right now. Uh, in the French version, the uh, language spoken by the uh, natives, Hergé uh, kind of made up his own language. It's a mix of uh, a uh, the Bruxellier dialect, which was spoken in the Morales area of Belgium. Mm-hmm. Now, that's where Hergé's grandmother was from. So he learned that language when he was a kid, talking to his grandmother. She would speak in that language. And so he knew it. So he would, it's sort of a game. He just, He kind of adapted it, added some Spanish uh, endings to it, so added some O's and stuff to the okay. end, gave it a bit of the form of, of Spanish um, to give it sort of a, a, a sort of authentic different language. But in the when, the when they came to translate it into English, they couldn't quite do that. So what they did is they did a phonetic spelling of Cockney. For yeah, the, that's what it feels like. Yeah, so, yeah. so it's like, so uh, what the native is saying to Ridgewell and Tintin, the first thing is, Ah, what a lovely bancha coconut. <laughs> ha, ha, ha. But the way they did it was they broke up the words so they're not all, the words are kind of divided in half so that half of the word is part, yeah. of a, a part of a word in this language. Which, and by the way, they're showing shrunken heads while they say that. So it's a very sick joke. Yeah. 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 All right. Then we're cutting to uh, Snowy's adventure. Uh, Snowy is uh, trying to trying to find Tintin. Uh, meanwhile, uh, two of the villagers say, The spirits tell me that if your son is to be cured, he must eat the heart out of the first animal you meet in the forest. Yeah. So this father goes, yeah. oh, That feels sad that the son is sick. Yeah. Sorry about that. But uh, goes out to find the first animal, finds Snowy, brings it back, and uh, it's time now for Snowy to be sacrificed. Yes. Yeah. And what's interesting is when the, when the, uh, when the tribes people, when the natives are talking to each other, they're speaking English or French, yeah. perfectly fine English or French. It's only when they're speaking to uh, outsiders, to Ridgewell or to Tintin, that their language is shown, right. which is interesting. And uh, and so Tintin and this uh, man are going to be sacrificed, uh, but uh, a fetish that's uh, up there starts speaking before this happens, scares him off. Witchcraft. Witchcraft? No, sir. Ventriloquism. Yeah. Back when throwing your voice was a thing. Yeah, that's interesting. It's a little, it's a curious turn there. Right. So back to Snowy about to be sacrificed. The knife is being raised. Uh, it's actually a good scene. It looks very scary, Snowy yeah. about to be sacrificed. But the sacrificer gets a uh, dart in the butt from the uh, from the old bearded one and uh, is chased off. And then uh, uh, Tintin uh, starts making friends. This sequence was probably redrawn uh, in 1943 for the color version. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is you can see how little uh, interest Hergé had in doing this. There's absolutely no backgrounds. Yeah. And any of these pages, all just flat green. Uh, just yeah, it was just a get her done job at this point. He probably didn't like this story any more than Ian does. So. <laughs> and so uh, we're meeting now the chief of the Arambayas. Pleasure, sir. Here we go. Uh, Tintin gets hit in the side of the head. Uh, what is it? It's a golf ball. They've yeah. been trying to teach him how to play golf, but they're just terrible at it. Mm-hmm. They're not very good at all. And uh, at this point, we get uh, another exposition dump. Uh, once again, there are no backgrounds, as Dave says, only words filling panels with tiny little heads at the very bottom. So this of is, them. yeah, this is how we kind of learn what, what significance the fetish has, which is that, uh, there was a different, uh, explorer, this guy named Walker, who came to, you know, visit the tribe. And while he was there, this, uh, person was with one of the scouts or one of the guides 
uh, stole this sacred stone. This turns out it was a diamond from the Arambaya. And he hid it inside a fetish, mm. meaning to come back and get it. Well, the Arambaya found, discovered the stone was gone. They chased after this group of people. And there was this pretty much a general massacre of everybody. Only a few of them survived, including the, the guy who stole the diamond. But I guess in all the excitement, the fetish, he was not able to return to the fetish. The fetish ended up in a museum in Brussels. And uh, this guy, Tortilla, learned this. He went to steal a diamond. And this is why we're in this situation. And Tintin goes, now I understand. The whole thing makes sense. <laughs> Somewhat. Got it. Okay, so now all I have to do is find the fetish and return it to Europe, says Tintin. Yeah, it's just that simple, Tintin. Uh, Tintin spends some days on a boat. Meanwhile, uh, we're, uh, we're, uh, we're back. You know, there's a big notice saying Republic of uh, San Theodorus notice uh, about deserters and... Uh, and uh, two guys with guns, they're uh, waiting for uh, Tintin, uh, trying to get a hold of the canoe. Yeah, this is our friends. Well, no, this is our friends uh, Ramon and yes, Alonso. that's right. They're yes. not actually look. They don't know Tintin's there. They're, oh, they They're are. just going through the jungle. Ah, okay. And uh, they're trying to find a boat or something. This is where I'm getting a little confused. They're trying to find fine. a boat. And suddenly, who do they see? Tintin. Look, oh. there is canoe. And yeah. with one man only. But am I think I am seeing things or is a dream this man... Caramba, it's Tintin. Yeah. So they meet again. And they have Tintin at gunpoint. That's right. And they're pretty much saying that this is the end of you. They're talking about the fetish being destroyed. Yeah. He's telling him nope. uh, And and, uh, telling him what's what. And so then there's a little bit of a a back and forth. And then Tintin does the classic, look out, a snake. What? Everyone looks, punches one to the face. Snowy bites the other, Ramon on the leg. On the, on the boot. And then we have a classic Tintin maneuver yeah. of the head into the stomach. Yeah, uh, getting him with that. Sh- you're like, why has he got that thing on the top of his head, that little thing? Will you impale a guy with that in the stomach? That guy's going down. <laughs> his quiff. And yeah, then there's a fight, and a great fight, too. Yeah, uh, a really good fight. Uh, Erge, even at, you know, pretty, pretty much just, I mean, he obviously knows a lot. He's learned a lot drawing for the last uh, eight years or whatever. He's been drawing Tintin. And, yeah, just great. The rolling around is fantastic. And it's interesting when you're reading these how different the fighting is in Tintin as, as from what you would find in, like, a superhero comic. Mm-hmm. Where there's, like, it's always, like, huge punches and big roundhouses that yeah. send people flying. Indiana Jones-style punches, yeah. And here, they're more, yeah, more wrestling and, and, and you know, when the, there's a couple of punches thrown, then it ends up in natural. Yeah. What Aside happens. from doing uh, head butts into the stomach, fairly realistic fighting. Yeah. So, uh, Tintin uh, is running, uh, the guy with the gun. Uh, trips over a log, uh, and the guy, he, he's in, he brings well, himself down, frankly. Well, he does both, because he goes to hit Tintin with the rifle and hits Ramon. So Alonso goes to hit Tintin, hits Ramon instead. Ramon is unconscious. Alonso chases after, uh, Tintin with the rifle, hits, hits a branch, knocks it out of the tree, and knocks uh, himself, knocks himself out. And then Tintin finds a note from Lopez mm-hmm. that has a few key things in it. Uh, it says, I'm going to die. Walker Expedition, the diamond in the fetish, the broken ear, signed Lopez. Yeah, so they found this little bit on the boat, and they used it. Uh, they didn't understand it at first, but when they just heard the fetish had been stolen, they have kind of figured out what was going on. And uh, so they set out to try and get it. And so now Tin has them, has them up in ropes again. Puts them in a boat. They're on the boat. boat. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's uh, tying someone up doesn't do much in this world. No. Uh, he gets free, uh, hits Tintin with an oar, and him and Snowy are now going overboard into piranha-filled waters. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but it's treated almost as a joke. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. I mean... And once again, though, 
Snowy gets bitten on his tail by the piranha. Two, who's two been shot? Two He's piranha. had a dart through it. He's been oh the poor guy that he has any tail left. He should have started with an enormously long tail, and by the end of this story, he'd just have a stub, should, like the Marsalupalami. Yeah. So they think that Tintin's dead, but then realize yeah, they're actually it's quite funny them being bitten by the piranhas. Uh, yeah. Then uh, oh, caramba! I didn't hit him hard enough. Look, he's recovered. He's reached the beach. Yeah. Uh, or the bank. And so uh, they get out of the water, uh, Snowy still with a piranha on his tail. Uh, Snowy exacting revenge on the piranha that's now bouncing up on land. Yeah, but uh, we got a tough job, Snowy, old boy. we got to make the journey on foot, and off they do. Several days later, they make it. <laughs> yes. And now, it almost feels like the story is kind of rushing to the end now. He's got six... Yeah. He's got, I'm on page 56. I really got to get to the end of the story. <laughs> so what's going to happen next? So, you know, yeah, Tintin's... Tintin... This, no, uh, this, this makes it sound more exciting with the uh, yeah. the uh, things going by. Okay, go ahead. So what's interesting now, here's the thing I often wonder in these stories. Where does Tintin keep his money? He's gone through all these adventures. Yeah. He's gone through all this excitement. He kind of washes up in San Theodore, in San Theodorus again. Yeah. Or no, he's in, uh, he's in Nuevo Rico. Yes. And uh, he's in his uniform. Yes. Suddenly he's bought clothes for himself. Mm-hmm. He's got his plus fours and his tweed jacket and a flat cap. He's bought the only suitcase that you can buy in the That's world. That's true. The yellow one. The yellow suitcase. It looks yellow exactly like. Case. Yeah, yeah. I got to assume that back then you could have money wired to you. Couldn't you telegraph yeah. like money? And I'm sure the newspaper, you know, if you went like, hey, I'm on this uh, story about this uh, fetish and all that. Oh, yes. Uh, here's some money. And then it's taken care of. Also, in previous uh, episodes, he's famous. He mentions yeah. his name. Everyone knows, oh, it's Tintin, famous uh, reporter. He doesn't need ID. He just hold up a newspaper. There's that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's in every uh, newspaper. We know him. So uh, Tintin is, uh, as you say, plus fours. And then a week later, uh, that we hear there's a ceasefire has been arranged between the forces of uh, San Theodoros and Nuevo Rico. It's uh, believed that a peace treaty will be signed in the future. Uh, Tintin is home, walks by an antique shop, and what the heck is in the window? It's the fetish. Yeah, it's interesting. And so he sees, sees the fetish. Yeah. Pays, uh, pays 100 pounds for it. Or Yeah, 200 francs. Okay. I got 100 pounds here, but fair enough. <laughs> That's right. And so then he's uh, walking down the street, and he sees two fetishes in the window. And they're only priced at seventeen fifty. Ah, uh, so he pair. got taken to the cleaners. Did he ever? And uh, so then he uh, is looking there, and he goes, "Oh, what is this?" So he goes into the shop and asks this, asks the shop owner what this means. The shop owner directs him to a place that's a factory that's a factory that's turning out fetishes. Jay Balthazar. And he runs in. It turns out it's the sculptor's brother who has taken this fetish and uh, because of the excitement over, I guess, and has started to make his own fetishes in this little warehouse. Yeah, seems a little grumpy talking to Tintin. Gives him a little, hey, what do you want? Yeah, yeah. yeah what's a big idea? Who cares? Huh? See, hey, well, who wants to know? Meh. So then he discovers, finds out the original was bought in the French version. It's uh, by Mr. Uh, Goldwood. In the I, French I version, Goldbar, Mr. Goldbar with two R's. Mr. Goldbar. A, re- a rich American. Yeah. You know, we're going to find the real fetish. He goes, he goes to his home, sees his butler, goes, I'm going to wait inside. Butler seems not being a good butler. Shouldn't keep him, yeah. let him go in. Uh, tells him that uh, he's left for America. Left for America. Oi, boo, I just missed him again. Tintin, wake up earlier. <laughs> uh, stop having that bath and doing your calisthenics. That's right. Uh, crying out <laughs> loud. Uh, goes to the boat, just misses the boat. Yeah. So, but luckily he's got a suitcase, of course, with him still. Yeah, he runs so fast that he loses his hat. 
Oh, yeah. no, he's got his hat in his hand. Yeah. It looks like so it. he goes racing to the... Uh, he catches a seaplane. Yep. Which takes off after the boat. And meanwhile, on the boat, Ramon, our friends Ramon and Alonso, yep. still there. They see uh, Mr. Goldbar, Mr. Goldwood, leaving his his uh, his uh, room on the, on the ship. And so they start searching. They find the fetish. Finally, it's theirs. They can't believe it, how lucky they are. And then... They don't realize this while they're talking <laughs> in the room for quite a while because Tintin lands in the, the plane. Yeah. A boat comes out to the plane, picks up Tintin. The boat rows back to the boat. The launch, I guess, rows back to the boat. Yeah. And then uh, Tintin talks to the captain. And then he goes running to find Mr. Goldwood's, Goldbar's room. And there they are, finally coming out of the room, the thieves. Tintin tells them to raise their hands. They drop the fetish. The fetish breaks. The diamond rolls out of it, rolls along the deck. They and chase the after it. three of them are chasing after yeah. it. Uh, it goes overboard, uh, Titanic style. Uh, he's lost. He's because of you. You pay for this. And uh, fight, fight, fight. And the three of them, they fall overboard. Yeah, it's They're a great... fighting underwater. Once again, another great sequence of the fighting. The three of them just grappling with each other. It's so, it's yeah. so well done. And uh, yeah, life, uh, life preserver is thrown at them. Only uh, Tintin is saved. And Tintin asks, well, uh, wrapped in a blanket, the others went straight on down. And then the next panel is pretty weird. It is kind of weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's more of a joke than anything, I think. Right. It's kind of... It's basically, I, I'm assuming it's them in hell. Is this what it yeah, is? Yeah, they're being taken to hell. They're being taken to hell uh, by very friendly-looking demons. Yeah, well, the happy. Happy demons. I wouldn't say friendly, but happy. Uh, you know, you could do worse. They are stabbing them with a pitchfork. So I don't know if friendly is the word uh, you want Maybe to use. that's just how they're carrying them, you know, perhaps. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's very strange. Is there anything like this in any future? No, it's very odd. It's kind of a one-off. I think this was kind of... And I've never seen demons drawn in this style. It's a very unique way it to draw demons. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting. And this story, I mean, I can see why you are objecting to it after reading, uh, after reading The Blue Lotus. I think if you read this one after The Cigars of the Pharaoh, you wouldn't yeah. think so much of it. Because Sequoia's the Pharaoh is also a very knockabout story with a lot okay. of a lot of goofiness in it as well. Right. All right. And well, this story is kind of a mix of of the kind of serious, you know, sort of documentary style of the Blue Lotus with the knockabout farce of the Cigars of the Pharaoh. Right. But just then in a better better way than the earlier stories kind of farce. Like Tintin in the Congo, the farce is very clumsy, and I think that's why it comes across badly, is that it's in a kind of a clumsy way. When you get to this point, he's really learned how to pace. Yeah. He's really learned how to... There's good bits. Get, there's yeah. good bits. But all right, let's just get to the end because we're on the very last page. So uh, Tintin uh, runs into Mr. Goldbar and lets him know as he's assembling his uh, the broken fetish yes. together. Yeah. Tells him it's stolen property. He's uh, shocked to hear this. Yeah. I said, oh, you can take that back to the museum. Absolutely no problem. And the final scene we have is the uh, fetish now all uh, shoddily uh, reassembled, frankly. Yeah. Uh, and put on display and the uh, watchman. Uh, sweeping the floor and singing the same song that we saw him at the beginning. Yes. There's no uh, Tintin returning the triumphant hero back to anything or anywhere. So no one, there was no, uh, at the end of this, did they have a, a live meet Tintin uh, no, situation? Or are we did, done with that? They did not. But this is the f- first story that has, it begins in Brussels and ends in Brussels. Oh, okay. So, because, well, the other story is kind of oh, having a boat. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. It goes in its own. All right, now, now okay. Uh, you're, you're making broader points about... You know, uh, if I read this after uh, Cigars of the Pharaoh, I'd, I'd feel that way or that. I mean, it's fu- it's it's fine. There's really good bits. There's very good action. Yeah. Uh, I just felt like it, it, every Tintin story so far has been sort of leaps uh, uh, beyond what the previous one was. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, this one seems like 
we're now just coasting a little bit. You well, know? and like I said before, I think it's a little unfair because Cigars of the Pharaoh is such a at this point is is such because it was drawn much later. It it kind of cheats in a way. Like you're not seeing the early version of Cigars of the Pharaoh, mm-hmm. like you're seeing the early version of the Broken Ear. Well, you're saying this you know? about art though, but like story wise, Cigars of the Pharaoh, I think it, well, it, there, there would have been changes. Just... There would have been changes as okay. well to that to to improve flow and stuff like that. And uh, so you're not seeing, you know, it's it's a little unfair. I, there are some. Although I can only judge what I'm. What oh yeah, I'm, I understand what, what's put in front of me. I understand. Yeah, yeah, I understand. So I just, but I'm just saying it's, it's kind of hard on the broken ear. And I do, and I can see, I can see the points that you're making in terms of of some of the things repeating. But you know, we're going to see more of that again. Like there are tropes that Hergé loved, mm-hmm. and he re- came coming back to quite a bit, and he liked to kind of squeeze what he could out of that particular stone so and, and you're telling you're telling me you know obviously you know this stuff was drawn later and he didn't seem to care about it but when you're getting to you know the end of the story and that's when all the backgrounds drop out yeah completely for yeah. a sizable amount of time yeah it kind of really takes the wind out of your sails and now everyone's just yapping and now we're going to explain oh this is the end of the mystery mm-hmm. oh okay mm-hmm. well let's just wrap it up i mean yeah. i really do and again as much as I was saying, like, that's weird. I like those demons at the end. That was like, yeah. oh, this is very creative and interesting. That's new. I'll, yeah. I'll always remember those guys. <laughs> uh, so, you know, listen, it's not a, it's not in any way a bad story. Yeah, he it would... just didn't have the escalation in quality that uh, that the previous ones have yeah, had. Yeah, he'll never the... kill people like that again in a story. Like That's the only time you'll see that kind of business where the villains get obviously get their due, mm-hmm. you know, in such a way that you see them being, well, they being kick, taken to they hell. They kick Snowy, so they deserve they to be deserve taken to, to hell. Taken to hell. And in fact, the Catholic paper, Le uh, they really objected to that sequence. Hmm. And uh, Hergé had to redraw up the panel for, for them. And it was something like Tintin commending their souls to God. Oh, it was the panel that he drew for. All right, for good for good for Tintin on that. Because one, one thing is, it's still it's still in a Catholic newspaper. It's still yeah. Hergé is still part, you know, still has that, you know, that teaching that that th- mindset is still part of his life. So it's still, you know, it's still going to happen that you're going to see that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I think the next, I think the next book you're going to enjoy quite a bit. All right. You're going to see a step up, a step up in sophistication. All right. And, and, and especially in the story. Then let me, uh, uh, lead into that and also, uh, say goodbye to our listeners right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, we don't want the conversation to end with just the two of us here. We, we love to hear from you and what you think. If there's things you thought we missed or, uh, you know, something you want to add yourself, sneakydragon.com is our webpage and, uh, we have message boards there. We'd like to hear from you. We also have a totally Tintin. Facebook page, and if you want to like that, we appreciate it. If you want to go onto iTunes and give us a review, that helps other people to find our podcast, and that helps us as well. So, uh, yeah, let's all talk to each other. Why not? If you want to email us, it's uh, sneaky sneakyd at sneakydragon.com. That is our email. That's correct? your email address. That's right. Yes. There we go. Yeah. All right. And so uh, next time we join you, it's going to be The Black Island featuring a cover where David, all right, spoiler, loves the water. <laughs> yes, very much so. Right. So uh, if you have a chance, uh, go pick that up from your local library or bookstore and follow along with us. We'll be doing all of these, uh, all of the collections, and uh, and we'll see where we go from there. Thank you so much for your kind attention. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Ditch. And this has been Totally Tintin. Thanks. Thank you.